are back. Union of the Unwanted live. Uh, I guess Sam, take it away first, and then Ricky. Can you dig it? Yeah, man. Super excited, Union of the Unwanted. Thank you guys all for joining us. We put together the best of the best for this very special topic. And uh, the topic is near-death, after-death experiences. And this topic has changed my life. And, uh, you know, dealt, you know, help me deal with scarcity, abundance. There are people on this show that have uh, changed my, how I look at the world and have freed me from the bondage of fear. And I'm really excited that everybody's here. So, Ricky, if you want to take over, it's all yours. And thank you, everybody, for joining us. Yeah. Uh, well, Sam, if you want to get one of Sam's cool shirts and one of these hoodies, check out uh, unionofdonwanted.com. You can find links to all our social media accounts. Oh, and Charlie. That's right. Well, what happened, Mike? Huh? You, you didn't get the memo? No, but, I forgot. <laughs> but, uh, Always but, be yeah, closing, brother. I'll change it. <laughs> Like like Sam said, this is a very unique show in regards to our ability. We have four hosts, Sam Tripoli, of course, from Tinfoil Hat Podcast and the 800 other shows he does. And then you have Charlie from Macroaggressions and Midnight Mike from OBDM and myself, Ricky Vrance from Ripple Effect Podcast. And we all have such different backgrounds and, and we ha- we've traveled in different crowds slightly so we can bring all those people together and just really spark some interesting conversations. That was kind of the goal and more or less, we've been successful in that. And I'm really excited about this topic because it is a topic that I'm not too familiar with. It's not something that I've dove too deep into, but I'm really excited about hearing everybody's personal experiences because that seems to be a common theme with this. And uh, and just hearing you know how this topic has changed maybe their perspective the same way that it's changed Sam's. Is there anybody, Sam, that you'd like to go to first or anybody who wants to jump in first and kind of Share Alex, you want to kick this off, man? You're someone who's dealt a lot with this, and uh, I'd love to hear your perspective. You're, you've uh, come on my show a couple times, talked about this. I'd like to kick it off with the the fucking giant. That's always, uh, <laughs> dude. Yeah. No, to. Alex. No, you you know actually, uh, what I thought Ricky just said. One of the things I think is really cool, what you did with this lineup, which is fantastic, is to have the experiencers here. So like Mike, I was totally struck when, you know, Sam, you had him on and he did the whole thing. And I thought that was amazing. And and maybe, uh, maybe Leslie will join us. She's supposed to join us in the next hour. And I think that whole story, I mean, I think the, the experiencers got to speak first. So I got to step back. From the mic, Mike Anthony. Hi, everybody. Yeah, uh, I'm Mike Anthony, uh, author of a book called Love Dad How My Father Died, then told me he didn't. Uh, I had an experience with something called physical mediumship after my dad passed, which was something I was wholly unaware of uh, entirely until I experienced it. Uh, and then I saw something happen, you know, with my own eyes. Uh, right in front of my face, sitting beside Leslie Kane, who's a journalist for the New York Times, who will be here in a bit. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a, the thing about physical mediumship is that there's no question about this. It's unequivocal. It either happens or it does not happen. It's physical in nature. Um, and everyone in the room experiences it or they don't. And I saw uh, something happen five inches from my face multiple times uh, that entirely upended my sense of... Um, you know, reality, 
uh, before I became, I'm, I'm an actor, before I became an actor, I had intended on being a, a science teacher. Uh, so that's what I went to college for initially. And, uh, you know, the mainstream materialist scientific paradigm says that what I saw is absolutely impossible. The smartest. Hey, hey Mike, Mike, yeah. can I just can I just jump in? Because when yeah. you did the show with Sam, one of the things that blew me away because I had read the I had read Leslie's book and I hadn't uh, I hadn't remembered this part. Talk about the hand because yeah. that's going to blow people away when she comes on. Just you were yeah. there. I mean, yeah, this is like a whole thing that happened in my life. Like I spend half of my time like whispering now when I talk because I'm like afraid people are going to think I'm absolutely insane. But. Uh, yeah, Leslie in her book, a book called Surviving Death, which there's a Netflix series uh, that's based on her book. Uh, she talks about witnessing a hand materialize out of a substance called ectoplasm, which I was sure was was invented by Harold Ramis and Ghostbusters. Uh, and I was shocked when I saw that word in a book by uh, an author of such you know journalistic prestige. Um, and she talks about seeing this hand materialize out of like this misty substance that was solid and that she could shake and feel the bones of and then let it letting go of that hand and watching it de dissolve again in, into nothing. And that sounded absolutely insane. Less than a year after reading that in Leslie's book, uh, through a crazy set of circumstances, I was sitting in that same room in this small town in England, watching that hand form with my own eyes multiple times. And all I can say is that it happens. It happens. Pretty amazing. Rosemary, would you like to jump in? Because you came on my show Zero and you told an incredible story. And, you know, we kind of connected on, uh, you know, I have children. And when I think about passing on to the other side, you kind of brought some clarity to that about how you don't necessarily think about it. And maybe you meet people more and more along the way. But uh, would you like to jump in, Rosemary? Absolutely. I'm, I'm trying to compose the Reader's Digest version and do this as succinctly as possible. Uh, briefly, my story started, well, I was a writer, wrote nine books on architectural history, had a pretty good life, married to an attorney in Virginia. And, uh, you know, I thought we had a great life, had, uh, you know, he was a litigator. Everything seemed to be going well. Came home for lunch one day, sat down in a chair in the backyard and put a gun in his mouth, mm. ended his life. And uh, being a sensitive writer type, I pretty much lost my mind. Uh, thus began a descent into hell. At about 29 months out, I was diagnosed with cancer, which I had been praying every night that God would let me die in my sleep. And when the cancer diagnosis emerged, I kind of had a talk with God and said, listen, I was pretty clear on this in my sleep, <laughs> not a long and protracted illness. And I, I was pretty horrified that, you know, I, I had been dealing with suicidal urges. That's one of the big problems of suicide is when the smartest man you've ever met, the smartest person you've ever known, decides that this is a good solution. It really opens the door for all manner of issues. So I had a minor surgical procedure. It went wrong. It went bad or wrong. And uh, it took about eight hours. And I was I, I went home and ended up going back to the hospital via an ambulance. But at the ER I was taken to after the hospital procedure, uh, I bled to death and died. And I, I, I died. Um, I it was really quite a thing. At the moment of my death, I was actually unconscious. They had given me Dilaudid, not to mention I had lost consciousness from bleeding so much. And I popped out of my body like toast out of a toaster. It was very dramatic. If I had to describe it, I would call it as being catapulted out of my body. And one, there are so many remarkable elements to this, but I know we have a lot of people that want to talk, so I'll try to be succinct. Uh, 
But one of the most remarkable elements is uh, as I was floating through this blackness, my first thought was my heart is stopped. And I thought, how do I know that? I thought, I don't know, but I know that's right. And then moving through this experience, again, floating further and further away from my body in this beautiful, perfect blackness. And again, floating very peacefully, almost as soft as a breeze on a, uh, as soft as a feather on a summer breeze. One of my thoughts was, um, you're dying. And then being, you know, the long-term editor writer, I said, actually, you're not dying. You're dead. And, you know, <laughs> it cracked me up. I thought it was pretty darn funny. And so I laughed out loud and I heard myself giggle. And I remember thinking, I don't have breath sounds. Pretty sure I don't have lungs or vocal cords or even ears. How am I producing sound and how am I hearing sound? And, you know, being the um, slightly, uh, shall we say, on the spectrum, overthinking, ruminates too much writer, I was talking out loud to myself and, and thinking about a thousand things in a thousand directions. And one of the most remarkable things, I, I feel like my whole life I had lived at 60 amps. And at the moment of my passing, it was like somebody had just put 100,000 amps, you know, through the box, through, through my system. I suddenly could see everything in every or sense everything in every direction. But that thing about um, thinking you're not dying, you're dead, it really did make me laugh. And I thought, boy, you know, everything I am has gone with me my macabre sense of humor, my odd view of the world, my, my intellect. I always like to think of myself as something of a smart cookie. And I felt like that had all gone with me. I, I recalled multiple Bible verses that had been very dear to me. And I realized it was actually in this experience, I realized every single thing I am went with me, right down to my funny little giggle and my goofball sense of humor and my intellect. And I did not have a thought of my three daughters as I moved further and further away from my body. And, and in retrospect, that's, I, I don't know what to make of that. What I did remember was that I did not do this myself. It literally felt like I had been granted early release for good behavior. I had suffered the torments of the damned since my husband shot himself at our home. And, you know, something a lot of people don't realize, suicide is a death like none other. And the police don't clean up that stuff. You're on your own. So for a sensitive writer type, it was beyond what words could say. I'd suffered with nonstop nightmares, et cetera, et cetera. So one of my thoughts was, it's over. This hard life, this horrible experience, it's all over. And I thought I didn't do it to myself. Despite 29 months of being sorely tempted to end my own life, I got away clean. And I, I thought in retrospect now, I, I do realize it's pretty remarkable that even in death, my husband's suicide was still on my mind. And also because of the cancer I'd been facing, um, I had uh, I was supposed to start chemotherapy and radiation treatments, daily radiation, once a week chemo. And I thought, I'm out of that. That's not going to be a problem now, is it? So it was pretty remarkable to me how much I remembered. And, and the story you know, goes on and on. But ultimately, I was taken to a white room. I was told I was there for healing. And I was told, um, as, as this went on and on, I was told it, it might be better to go back. And I said, oh, no, you don't. I'm not doing that. I, I, I remember what's back there. <laughs> a, a disease process, suffering, wanting to die. I was just so grateful. And ultimately, I, I, ugh, I was shown a vision of somebody who would be very sad if I crossed over. So I did agree to come back. But I was told if I agreed to return, I'd be healed. And it was understood that I would be healed of all of it. Uh, the, the cancer uh, and mainly the bigger thing and some people don't understand this but the bigger thing was being healed of the grief occasioned by my husband's suicide I mean he and he and I had had a pretty good life as I said in the beginning and I ended up about as far down as a person can go for a brief period I was actually living out of my car because I was in such a bad mental state 
So I came back from this, ended up in the hospital for several days because it turns out when you bleed to death at age 59, it's kind of a big deal. And yet when I did return to the doctor's astonishment, uh, even though I had actually technically died of a heart attack, which was evidenced by blood tests showing elevated enzymes, there was no damage to my heart. There was no damage to any part of my body. Uh, my perfect health returned in about 14 days, which nobody could believe. And then subsequently, tests affirmed that every vestige of cancer was gone. We're talking stage two cancer, and it was absolutely gone when I came back. And that's a very dramatic healing, of course, but it really what happened was my soul was restored. I, my, I was healed from the inside out. And after this, I sold every single thing I own. I mean, I sold my everything in my house down to lawn furniture and lamps. I sold my lovely car with a white leather interior and the V6 engine with 301 horses, not that I'm counting. I sold my home, sold in two hours, and I literally, a couple of my friends called and said, you get ready to off yourself? You sold everything now. But I literally sold everything I own to move a thousand miles to west, to the Midwest, to start a new life. So I had a neurologist meet with me, well, I guess a few months ago, and she said, the most remarkable part of your story it's not the healing. It's not the restoration. It's not turning your life around. But the fact that you made all these changes, the human mind is not inclined to completely re rewire and reset everything. And she said, the fact that you did this so dramatically, she says, that tells me more than any other aspect that this was a profound experience. That's amazing. Incredible. That's amazing. Uh, Dr. Mary Helen, would you like to uh, jump in? Because uh, your story about the land beyond the river is something I quote a lot about, you know, when dealing with in the conspiracy com community, there's a lot of discussion about sins and all this stuff. And I always say that God doesn't care, you know, in the land beyond the river. I say that a lot to people and that had a profound effect on me. And uh, if you want to tell them a little bit about your story. Oh, you're, you're, you're muted. You're muted. You're muted. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Man. It's one of the side effects of being dead. No. <laughs> <laughs> so long story short, I was in an accident, um, in 1991 in Charleston, South Carolina, I got hit 75 miles an hour, um, broke my neck, died. Um, had an extraordinary near-death experience and without getting into all the ins and outs of it because it was so detailed, that was the big thing about it. It wasn't just coming back with a feeling of love and light and, you know, walking into the light, Carol Ann. And it was um, extraordinarily detailed and details that I would come back and use in my, in my new life um, because there was an extreme change, you know, having coming out of four years of college as a, of a, as a graphic artist and then suddenly being pushed into school to go become a doctor. Um, I came back with all of this. Mary, don't want to cut you off real quick, but I think there's some extraordinary stuff that you're kind of jumping over. Sorry. I want to tell you how to tell your story, if you don't mind. <laughs> you but, tell uh, me. Let you real quick. The last thing uh, I want to do is disappoint you. No, no, no. But it's like the death is really your death and what you went through in that moment was really extraordinary. And I think it's very important to your story that people hear just like, you know, Rosemary in, in, in the hospital. I think it's very important people hear about how you died and what you went through because this is a big part of the story. And then also what 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 involves your father. So uh, I was jumping, into, I was jumping into the land beyond the river. Okay. Yeah. All right. So 
you want the skinny? Here's the skinny. Um, I'm sitting at a traffic light and my light turns green and I'm going across a major highway. And as I get to that last lane of traffic, I look left and there's a car barreling towards me. And I realize in that moment, this car is not going to stop and I'm dead. And it was at that point that everything just slowed down to a snail's pace. And what was so fascinating was, you know, I was a preacher's daughter um, from the South and grew up in the church and everything that I had been told would happen in that moment of death did not happen. It was so small compared to what actually did happen because in that moment, I was in complete control of my experience. I was able to decide, okay, kid, do you want to stay in the body and experience the impact? Is there something I need from that experience? Or do I feel like I've done this enough times where I can go out of the body and observe my own death? So in that moment, I decided I was going to go out. So guys, I'm out of my body before my body is dead. And I get to witness my own death. So in that snail's pace, there is this extraordinary tone of vibration, of frequency that elevates me, the essence of who I and what I really am out of my body. And I am looking down at my own body still in that car and everything speeds up. And a 90-year-old man runs through a, a red light and T-bones me at 75 miles an hour. I watch the car get hit, fold in half. I watch my head go through the window, come back in, spin around. There's blood and there's glass and I'm hanging there. And I am literally watching this happen with the detached interest that I always describe of peeling off dirty clothes after a day out in the, in the yard, hot and sweaty and throwing them next to the washing machine and having a really awesome shower where you're washing off all the muck and the grime. And the last thing you're thinking about is your dirty clothes. The last thing I'm thinking about in that moment was the body that I've just left behind. And as I move from that space, that sound, that frequency, that vibration starts speeding up. And there is this incredible celestial symphony that is taking place. Music and tones that I've spent my entire adult life trying to replicate. Um, that took me out of the space of being still attached to the earth plane and looking at the accident taking place. That now found me landed in a completely different space. And it is there that I had a very detailed experience of exactly why I was there, I had chosen to be there, how it works, how the body works, how the body is there to serve the spirit, how the body is this most incredible piece of work that is designed to, to walk us through every element of the life that we choose to come here and experience, including all the pain, the sickness, the hardship, the joys, all of it. It was incredible. But what was also amazing was the fact that I was met in that space by two beings. And, um, were they angels? Nope, no wings, nothing like I'd been taught about, you know, as a kid growing up in Sunday school. As a matter of fact, none of this was like anything I had been taught to believe when growing up. It was so much more expansive than that. And so um, in that space, um, I decided to come back. I knew I was coming back in and it wasn't anybody forcing me to. It wasn't an upset. It was a dude, put me back in coach. I'm in, Do you know, I know what I'm doing with this. Only when I was put in, they're going, you're not going to go back in the same way that you were, you know. And I'm like, 
rock on what's what's up and so i came back in with these very freaky abilities to be in someone's presence not be in their same space download their hard drive and i can literally kind of read their story watch their movie and see what the hell is going on and it is so awesome and so incredible and i am so grateful to be able to do that and what i do now is i work with sound and frequency in order to teach other people how to do it for themselves so it's like hey guess what you don't have to die um that was the big cosmic joke <laughs> is that you don't have to die to learn how to do it's physics if you can learn how to manipulate the physics and the frequency of every single thing there is a frequency for every emotional state and every physical state or every spiritual state and it is accessible to everyone and that was amazing that's what i loved and uh real quick the thing that really stuck with me when i interviewed you was the passing of your father. Yeah. And to me, and you know, I've talked to so many people that have near death experiences. And what I love about it is it seems like each one is unique to these people. And that's what gives me hope. It's like, it's still, we're such, even though we're all one part of the universe, we all have very unique, unique experiences when we die. And, but the thing that, you know, as we, as these, I call them masters of mankind, I got that from Noam Chomsky, as they try to manipulate us with and divide us into these, you know, uh, these identity politics, you know, something that your dad said to you really like kind of, for me, just push that all away. Blew it out of the water. Yeah, I'd love to hear. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so dude was an extraordinary man. He was called coach by everyone. Um not only was he a minister, but he was also a, a football coach, um, great big American football star, big guy, world champion weightlifter. Everyone loved being in his audience on a Sunday because it was all sports related. So he had he had the best sermons ever. And um, but he was very, um, you know, very, very disciplined, not only in his physical life, but in a spiritual life. And so he he was very much so into modern Christianity and everything that that means. And so, um, you know, with that, even though he didn't really force this or shove this down anybody's throat, there was no fire and brimstone. There was a heaven and there was a hell and there was a, there was a divide and some of them, some went up and some didn't. And so when my father had Alzheimer's and he had long since lost the ability to speak, my mother and I were sitting in the nursing home with him and he'd had a very, very difficult day. He'd been shuffling around. He mumbled, he'd drop his pants. He'd do, you know, all the things that people do with sundowner syndrome. And he, you know, all he could do was mumble. And that's all he could do for months, which was really bizarre watching someone who'd been, been such a brilliant orator in his time. And so all of a sudden this evening, this one evening, it was late and we were exhausted and dad had shuffled around, he'd shuffled to the bathroom and he would not go down and lay down in the bed because he was afraid he would die. And we thought this was so weird because, you know, you spend your whole life trying to teach people not to fear death and to, you know, that some, your reward waits for you and all this. And yet when it was his turn, he was petrified. And so on this particular night, he goes, he goes back to the bed and all of a sudden he lays down and he starts reaching up and he's laughing. And my mom's looking at me like, oh my gosh, is this it? And I'm like, no, you know, this isn't it because there is a, 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 dis, a very distinct look around people who are passing. And it's not like a, a light dimmer switch going down. It looks like a fireworks explosion when someone is exiting the physical plane 
mean, it is a, it's quite a show and I'm looking and that's not there. My dad's light looks the same. And, um, we're just listening and we're watching him, watching him. And all of a sudden he starts laughing and he goes, I can see it. Now we're freaking out because the man has not spoken in months. He couldn't speak. And I said, well, Hey dad, what, what can you see? And he goes, I can see it. It's the land beyond the river sugar. And it's more beautiful than anything you've ever written about. And I said, great. Talk to me. What, what's going on? And he said, mama's there. And she looked so young and I was like, amazing. So he was having an experience, but then next thing he looks like a deer in headlights and he just freezes and he goes, Oh my gosh, daddy's there. And my mom looked at me and her eyes were like saucers. And the reason this is so important is because according to my father's criteria of those who would get to go to heaven and those who would go to hell, his own father didn't make the cut. And he had done some things that according to my father's idea of what Christianity involved and, and um, those who would, who would get to go, my grandfather didn't make it. And so he is stunned because in the midst of this experience, he's sitting there looking at his own father and he, his eyes just, you know, fill with tears and he's laughing that kind of giddy, happy, crying, laugh type thing. And he looks over at my mom and he said, Helen, I've had it wrong all along. Everybody's welcome here. You can't mess this thing up. Everyone is welcome here. And it, for me, having had a near-death experience and having had so many incredible experiences as a result of that, it was probably one of the most profound things that I've ever had the opportunity to witness. Because for someone who was so deeply ensconced in that physical, spiritual, emotional discipline in his life, to have that deathbed moment where he suddenly realizes, oh yeah, oh my gosh, the veil was lifted. And that idea, that box that he had put himself in, in order to experience human life and to give his own gifts and to receive the knowledge he received in his experience here, it lifted off suddenly. And it was like he got to remember in that moment, everybody's welcome. You can't mess this thing up. Yes. Such freeing stuff. I, I, does anyone want to jump in that maybe wants to talk? Please do. This is, I just love it. Now I'm going to talk to Dr. Dave and Carla about their, them, um, knowing the each other I, passive lives. We'll the thing it. that I'm most struck by with Mary Helen's story is the fact that like, likely all of us would judge ourselves and other people harsher than God. 100. That's all done on purpose, man. To get us all to fight with each other. These rules have been put in, you know, they talk that, you know, the United States problem we're losing, you know, we're getting away from God. I think we're getting closer to God. We're just losing organized religion. That's my belief. And, uh, you know, I want to ask, I've been thinking about this. And if you have that, look at Bill Gates or Klaus Schwab or Dick Cheney, whoever you think had like to use Ricky's expression, you know, just a ripple effect of terrible, terrible impact on the world. And even though they may even think they were doing the right thing, my, my father, he, he was not the, uh, you know, beacon that your dad was, he had good qualities and bad qualities, but he like was so obsessed with justice that it, he counted on the heaven hell thing 
to make him feel all right with what these people do to us. And how do you, how do you think about that problem? Mary Helen. The, the justice element, right? Isn't heaven and hell kind of, and whether it's true or false, the, the purpose it may serve is to keep you on the right path. And, and to the extent the right path is subjective, doesn't hurt anybody, whatever, mm-hmm. I can get how there's a, you know, just and merciful, all loving God will mm-hmm. welcome a broader spectrum than we might think. But when you're talking about people who are getting away with stuff that seems like pure evil mm-hmm. on this earth, how does that, how does crossing yeah. that river get, get you to a place that you feel is a good place? Well, I think that it's, it's, you know, it's the objective of good place. You know, it's, uh, it's breaking down that illusion that, you know, light will prevail, good will win over evil and all and recognizing Aha, and this was a big deal for me that the earth plane is not set up for that. That's not what we're here for. We're here to find balance. We're here to grow through balance. It's not that light wins in the end. It's not that there is an end to this battle. It's that this plane is actually set up as a playground for growth where we're going to see that pendulum constantly swing between the dark, the light, the good, the evil. We're always going to see that dichotomy. You know, you want to go somewhere else, you, you know, you don't go to Harvard Law for to learn how to make a cake. Do you know, you don't come to the earth plane in order to get that White House, you know, with the picket fence and the dogs and the kids and the whole thing. Some people get that, but there's always another storm brewing. And so this idea of what we have set aside for ourselves is what is good, what is just, what is justice, because it's subjective to to every single individual, do you know, um, within the confines of certain societies, things that you and I might think are absolutely 100% appalling in their world is just and good. And if that, if those people, you know, are, are living that way and they choose to believe that, and that's what they are, the box within which they are operating, you know, I became a fan of the boxes because we had gotten into this kind of hierarchy thing of going, you know, well, I live, I'm outside of the box. Um, you know, I, I work outside of the box. They're so in the box, you know, and it, it became like, if you're out of the box, you're better than somebody else. Um, when actually the boxes are there to serve us when you're in that box of Christianity or when you're in that box of, you know, the politics of being, you know, a Republican, a Democrat or this or that or whatever, you know, that particular boxes, that box is there for your own growth. And you leave the box when you're ready to leave the box, not because the box is a bad thing, but because you no longer need that box. Does that make that box bad? Does it make it, you know, evil or dark because it no longer serves you? No, it just no longer serves you. And so I think, you know, as we strive towards what's just and what's right, it's like when we're talking about a nickel or a million bucks and someone steals a nickel or someone steals a million bucks, which one of them goes to heaven and which one goes to hell? Well, is it not in the intent and not the amount? Do you know? So I think we have to always be very cognizant of the fact that, you know, each and every person is going to have their, their idea of what is good, what is just, what is right. And you know what? I looked at my dad's experience and I went, oh, my God, thank God that's how it worked. You know, that, you know, that we're all so dim that and in that final moment, God, you can, hey, y'all get to come back home again. You know, you're running around acting like a bunch of assholes. But guess what? We love you. Come on home. Do you know? 
Yeah. That to me is liberating. I think it is too. And uh, Rosemary will let you comment. I know you want to add on to some stuff, but for me, the most black belt of discussions in the conspiracy spiritual world is when bad things happen to good people, is that somewhat on their path? And it's, it's so emotionally charged. You can't have this conversation with everybody. You have to have these conversations on shows like this because people, but my blah, 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 blah. They were not saying that, man. I'm not saying who's that at defining all. who's good. Well, you know, in, in terms of like, let's say you love your mother or your kid or whatever that may be, you know, these people, your grandma's the greatest person ever and something bad happened to her and you want to understand or, or when they say when, you know, if there's a God, why do children get cancer? I'm not saying that anyone deserves anything. That's not what I'm saying. But sometimes there's some past that people come to live here that involve some of the endings that some of us don't like. Absolutely. Rosemary, did you want to say something? I did. Uh, Briefly, Mary Helen mentioned that um, Earth could be but a playground where we learn life lessons and spiritual growth, and that's why we're here. And speaking as somebody who's a suicide survivor, as we're known, somebody who survived the suicide of a very close loved one, I think that's a little hypothetical and I think very dangerous. I'm in a suicide widows group on Facebook, which... There are 1,400 women in that group of all ages and a wide variety of circumstances. And the suffering uh, that we've been through cannot be described. And a number of the women in that group, uh, these men that ended their lives, first either tried to kill the wife or maybe they shot a child. Sometimes they shot a couple kids. So to call it a playground, I, I just think we have to be very careful with such language because the suffering that suicide survivors endure um, it's it's beyond what one can imagine. And I know the concept of soul contracts, that that we come here understanding that we're going to go through some hard times and we agree to it beforehand. I I cannot get behind that. I think, you know, I, I do believe in free will. I believe that lots of things can happen, lots of twists and turns. I know that it, to me, it feels like I'd have to be something of a masochist to inflict this on myself. I mean, for 29 months, it very nearly killed me. It very, very nearly destroyed so many other people, too, my children. Uh, so, yeah, I, I really think we have to be careful in this language um, when we talk about this with others. Because these, I mean, my experiences with suicide, I had a very good friend whose husband was murdered by somebody. And uh, it, it goes on and on and on. These are extraordinarily painful things that change you for a lifetime and lots of people they do but like for instance you're you know not to not to cut across but like when my daughter attempted suicide a few weeks ago i sat down and because of my own experience was able to have a distinct conversation with her and go guess what kiddo i will sit with you and i will walk through death with you if that's what you want to do i can't force you i can't make you want to stay here what i can do is i can help you find the help if you want the help, but I can't continuously be there because there are moments when I'm not going to be present and you're going to have to decide at some stage in your own life. Was that painful for me as a mom? Sure it was. However, to say, I also think it's equally dangerous though, to go into that kind of state of delineating that that's any different than any other type of death, because in my own death, it is something 
that a spirit, a soul has the choice when they come in and they incarnate that they have the opportunity to go there the same as, you know, it's like calling one type of death more painful or more serious than another. Do you know, it's, um, I work with suicide every single day in my work, every single day. I have seen every shape and form of it have experienced in my own household. I have, I've been there. I understand that. And my experience and my view of that obviously seems very different than yours. And guess who's right? Both of us. So your perception of how I view that might appear dangerous to you. And my perception of how you deal with that through your experiences might, might appear dangerous to me. And the thing we have to agree to come to, to agreement on is the fact that our experiences of that, of that path out, of that suffering are completely different based on our own experiences. And no one has the right to say that one's person one person understands or doesn't understand that suffering because we experience it in two different ways. That's where I think it gets dangerous. Maybe it's the terminology that may be calling it a playground. But again, you know, I mean, like, I guess. Hey, lots of shit goes down on the playground. No, I get that. So I can understand <laughs> that where you're coming from, Rosemary. I don't think she meant anything to be, you know, disrespectful to your experience or anything like that. I just think it's a term that, she meant to be where we come down and we're here to learn. And I believe it was you, Mary, that uh, Rosemary, we had a conversation about people who commit suicide and the contract that you do. And do you have to come back and uh, do it again? And that to me is uh, about a learning experience, you know, because I've had a couple of my friends lately have said goodbye and it's very, very tough to deal with. And, um, you know, the, 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 we make a contract and whatever happens. And, I, you know, I believe in free will, but I also believe that we're here to learn something. I've had people come on here and say it. But again, I, you know, I just want to make sure that we're, you know, we're all, we're all saying along the line, same things. You know, the little details could be different, but I do believe we all have a similar belief. Is there anybody who else who would like to jump in? I think Can I just say one quick thing about that, Sam? Yeah. Uh, I was just uh, listening to an interview with a psychiatrist who was uh, discussing a patient of his who was a murderer. This guy was like a stone cold murderer. You know, he was on death row. So he did not kill someone by accident. He intended to kill somebody and kill them. He died on death row, was resuscitated, had a full blown near death experience. And while he's outside of his brain or whatever is actually happening physiologically, he was able to perceive, he had a life review, like is so often um, talked about in these experiences. And he was able to see somehow even the murder of that person, which from this perspective, obviously, there's no other way to see that than awful. From outside of his brain, first of all, he's able to see that he's operating with a brain that is not functioning properly. So the idea of judgment from outside of that, you know, he... He wasn't being super hard on himself because he's operating through a brain that's malfunctioning. And obviously, if you stone cold kill someone, chances are there's something not right in the in the physical apparatus. Um, but but he also could was able to see how uh, it was necessary for other things to happen, for other dominoes to fall in other lives, as difficult as it is from this perspective. And he also, like everyone else says, it's almost impossible, almost impossible to put this stuff into words once you're back in your brain again. But anyway, so that just uh, sheds a little bit of light on, on what it's like from someone 
who is the who is the bad guy themselves who goes through this experience and then they're able to see it from the sort of objective space where they see why they did what they did. They also see that it was wrong. They see the pain that they caused and they know that they're going to have to deal with that through karma or whatever. Uh, things are going to have to balance out. Uh, but ju that's just another perspective. I think Birch? Birch, would you like to jump in? Then Ricky, sorry about that. Oh, no, no. I think uh, I was just going to... I know Chris said he had something to say and then oh, Miriam, Miriam has a personal experience she'd like to share. Uh, well, let's do, let's do, uh, yeah, let's go after that American jump in after Birch real quick. So go on. Um, hello, you guys. My name is Birch Driver. If For you guys who don't know me, I have the Green Knight podcast. And uh, thank you for inviting me on here, Sam. I'm, you know, I just want to say really quick, uh, I've heard all of you guys' interviews with Sam and uh, <clears throat> I love all y'all, you know, and I'm a fan of all of you other guys, you know, Mike and Charlie and Cosmic Keys and Alex. I just love you. And also Grimerica, so I just wanted to say that. So I'm unworthy, but um, <laughs> I do have some things that I could say, you know, about this subject. And uh, I think that's why Sam invited me on. Um, so I, you know, I kind of agree with the the idea that it could be that Earth is a school, you know, for our souls, right? But I'm not certain. I'm also I also agree with Rosemary, but I'm not certain that um, that that evil is necessary for the school to be effective you know it's like there's this society is sick i guess we can agree on that can we all agree that society is kind of sick right and so does this sickness need to exist for our souls to get a good experience you know and to elevate i guess so to speak and do you guys hear what I'm saying on this one does anyone oh, are you saying does, does conflict need to exist for a person to grow well, not necessarily conflict because contrast is part, right? This is part of uh, nature, right? But uh, does um, this uh, kind of uh, mechanical advantage that some people kind of use on other people, the human use of other people, um, right? Does, is that really necessary, right? Is that really necessary? And, and, you know, when you guys, you talk about these uh, near-death experiences, and it's like when you discover, when you come back from those, I haven't really had one, I don't think. I, I mean, I guess I could tell the story, but when you come back, you are a different person, and you change the way you interact with everyone. You realize who you are, right? And you're not your body, right? You're not your body, right? And so I think the the what we're getting at here is, is like, if we really understand who we are, the, is all of that um, jockeying for position that happens in society really necessary to have an elevating experience for our souls? Very interesting. Forbid knowledge news. Would you like to, I agree with that Birch. I, I, I do think there is some suffering to this realm that we're in and that, and that we learn from it. And that's why we're here. Now, I, it is of my belief that's what political correctness is, is a bunch of people without suffering trying to find some suffering <laughs> so they can, you know, so they can live through somebody else's oppression. We see it all the time. How many people's pain and suffering in their life is coming through their television set and their, their, their computer monitor? They're get, I, I do, it happens to me all the time. I do shows. People get offended on other people's behalfs that aren't even there. And it's like, I just think this realm where we're here to learn 
a, a different part of the universe. So, I mean, I, I totally agree with what you're saying there. Forbidden knowledge. Yeah, I just have a question for some of the experiencers, and anyone can really feel this. It's about reincarnation. Um, now, do you think we're really being reincarnated or rather accessing like a form of collective consciousness uh, after death? You know, we have this access to everything and everyone through our consciousness, I believe. And, um, you know, are these reincarnation experiences, you know, people who are being regressed, is this really reincarnation or accessing some kind of collect collective consciousness? What do you well, think? Dr. Dave is really good at that. Him and his wife are, have both written books on it and experienced it. And I would love to have them come on and talk about it. Oh, uh, you so, guys are mute. Yep. Yeah. Are we still muted? Yeah, you're good. You're good. You're good. Okay. First, can we just say, Rosemary, we're sorry for your pain. It's difficult. Um, there'll be a lesson in there. And Mary Helen, I love you. You're very real um, and you're practical. And through our experience, I've become very much the same way as you. It's, it's easy to, to become that when you understand it. And, and it's really fascinating listening to all of you. There's some, our experience is a little different. Our experience has to do with reincarnation. So it's interesting that Chris just asked that. Uh, our experience started six or seven years ago when we started to meditate. And we actually had a spontaneous past life memory. I'm a physician and I didn't really believe in reincarnation. I was raised Catholic. Carla was raised Catholic. And while meditating, I had an experience of seeing Carla standing across an alley from me. I saw two large flashes. A gun went off. I felt the, the bullet penetrate my chest and it threw me back and I was bleeding. We kept meditating because this experience was very strange to have a a, a dream or memory while while meditating. Later, I found that I met this woman that I saw in the alley in 1925 before I was born. And then I found out because I met her and we went for a walk and she told me her name was Ruby Donaldson and she was from Bullock, Georgia. And her parents' names were Anna and James. And she worked for a man named Angelo who we later found out was Angelo Jenna, which was a mobster in Chicago before Al Capone. And Carla, because she's a curious woman, went out and looked and found Ruby's birth certificate, found Angelo's wedding announcement where I met her at that wedding. And we started to run with it and started to continue to meditate. And we found 29 past lives together. What's interesting in this discussion is that we've had this memory that was we were able to verify. Then we went to look at, at other reincarnation research, and we found that there are multiple people that have the same experience. We found a lot of research based on reincarnation where they showed a lot of children who had spontaneous past life memories. We went on and did past life regression training and have regressed people back to their past lives. And we've experienced many things. And, and part of the lessons that we learned had to do with karma. So that might address Rosemary and Mary a little bit. But what we learned was there is a part of our essence, 
the soul, your consciousness, if you want to call it that, that continues both before your life now and after your life when you die. And, and we found that there's a lot of things with near-death experiences and past life regression that are very consistent. So that's really interesting with this kind of discussion because the past life review happens where people actually have to sit through, watch their past life. Much like Mike said, the murderer has to watch it where he killed someone. And part of that is the lesson to learn compassion and understand what you put somebody through. We also learned lessons about suicide. And of course, if someone commits suicide, they didn't finish all the lessons they had in this life. And they'll probably return to the next life with those same lessons need to be finished. So that addresses some of Rosemary. So when I'm listening to everybody talk, I think it's fascinating because many of our experiences are the same. We find beings of light that occur, whether that's God, angels. We find past life review that occurs both in past life regression and in, in some near-death experiences. We have places where people are planning what to do when they come back and how that planning works out. And so the experience that everybody has here is somewhat consistent. And there is some part of us that interacts on a non-physical basis with our physical self here. And it's interesting because even as we think about that, part of this physical experience is how we explain things, how we are aware. And maybe we need a physical experience to actually experience anything at all. And so our consciousness may have to come here, our soul has to come here to learn lessons, to learn experience, to gain something that gives us perspective. And for us, we found that some of the perspective is, is karma and we learned a whole set of lessons, which is live a life without conceit, jealousy, selfishness, unforgiveness, and always make every decision. And the word that I heard many of you say was intention. And so the word is make every decision out of the intention to love. And that was our experience. And we found many lives, some of which we were horrible and some of which we were wonderful. And we found that we live on each and every side of every situation. We found ourselves as kings and queens, black and white, Protestant, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, um, Shinto religion in China, or Japan, but China, those kind of things. So we've actually lived on each side of every, every sort of issue you could think of. In fact, we have a, a past life where we were the Scottish fighting the English, and I died in the Scottish war reincarnated, the war lasted so long that I actually fought on the English side. So we find out that conflict is important, but we literally find we're fighting ourselves. So you won no matter what side you're on, right? You won no matter what <laughs> side you're on. Um, anybody want to jump in? Feel yeah, free. can I? I just no, wanted to. Uh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Um, um, after Mike, uh, Miriam, if you want to uh, jump in and, and share your story. I, I just wanted to address quickly uh, forbidden knowledge that, that the question directly you asked 
uh, is there a way to know that this is not just information we're pulling from the Akashic records or right. the zero point field or whatever terminology we want to use? I don't think there's ever going to be a way really to 100% address that. But to me, there is some evidence that logically points to it not being that. And that is um, to, to specifically stick with kids who have spontaneous memories of these lives. So m- hypnosis is not involved unless you consider maybe like playing a, a form of hypnosis. Um, these children, 99.9% of them, and we now have thousands of verified cases, thousands at the University of Virginia, uh, verified meaning that the kids have given enough evidence, enough details to, to, to figure out who the previous personality was. And sure enough, those details match up and there's just no way the child could know that. In 99.999% of those cases, the child remembers one specific life, one specific life. In a couple of rare cases, they seem to have memories from more than one life, but the 99% is one life. So if we're pulling this from the, from the zero point field, the Akashic record, whatever, um, and let's say some brains have some sort of a mutation that allows them to do this, to pick up on the, the field, um, it doesn't seem logical to me necessarily that that it would pick up just one frequency and that's it. Why wouldn't it pick up multiple? Uh, why wouldn't they have maybe other psychic sort of abilities? Uh, instead, they, they, have, they tend to have just this one uh, specific life that they recall. And often it's very emotionally that they recall it. It's not just details. It's not like they're just picking up details from the field. They, sometimes these kids are like begging their, their, their mom to be taken to their other mommy, like crying every day for, for a year sometimes. Uh, so to me, some of that tends to point point uh, to it being something other than just picking up information uh, from from the universe. Uh, the well, hard, the hard drive is being written I had over. a child who didn't speak to me for two years because she wasn't black. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Mike, it's really interesting. That's the truth. The research at the University of Virginia, it, it includes things like they take the child to their past life and they walk in and they literally address a woman and say, I recognized you, This you were my wife, Helen. Yeah. I mean, and so it's not that kind of, a, it's a memory that can't be just generally picked up because they actually remember the details of that life, the people in that life. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's a story that I always am amazed at when a, a young boy runs into the house and runs upstairs, says, I buried $4,000 under this plank of wood. They pry it up and there's $4,000 and there's no way a three-year-old knew it. Yeah. That's not something just picked up from an Akashic record. And if you're looking at how all this works, if you look at some of the science of it, you find that the subconscious records everything in this life, such if you touch something that's hot, the next time you touch something hot, you pull back faster. If that same conscious stream that's in your soul, your subconscious continues to follow you, which all these NDE people, all the past life regression people, all the spontaneous memory people, it seems that there is something that exists that is actual, that exists when you do not physically exist. And that part that all the NDE people have, that we have, that these kids have, is some part that continues to follow them in their subconscious from their past lives. And they don't necessarily remember it. However, maybe that's what the deja vu is. 
something from a past life jumps in and and you remember something. That's also what that experience is when people have, say, I'm very scared of the water. They find out that they've actually drowned in a past life. And so they want to avoid water because they want to avoid drowning again, just like you want to avoid being burnt by something hot again. And those traumatic experiences are the ones that are the easiest to remember. There, there's an article called Inheriting Father's Fears, and it has to do with the mice experiment where they spray the basically a synthetic scent that the natural world, and they would shock the mice. And then for generations afterwards, the the you know, obviously it's children and it's children's children of the mice would have a panic experience every time they would smell that scent without ever being shocked. And what they basically the conclusion was they believe that they weren't just inheriting things like the physical uh, nature of your, your parents, like the skin color, eye color, all that type of stuff, but actually trauma and you can inherit all types of things. And we don't know how many generations that could go down. So like you're talking about experiencing or having some memory in your subconscious deep in there not knowing where it came from. I mean, that could come from grandparents, great-grandparents, and who knows what we're inheriting. Yeah, so that's interesting. Yeah, Ricky, uh, and building on, I'm sorry, if I could now. jump in. Sure. Uh, let me, one thing. They're actually doing studies right now with what few Holocaust survivors and or what memories maybe following family members that survived the Holocaust. And so there are some Jewish people that are undergoing these studies, trying to figure out if they actually do have trauma that has followed them many generations later than the Holocaust. And uh, what I think Ricky was saying, yeah, yeah, what Ricky was saying about uh, this can persist for generations. The trauma can go down through generations. That is, uh, I read about a suicide near-death experience. Somebody came back from that, and he's, uh, he survived. He came back to tell the tale of his experience with trying to kill himself. And the story he told was he was shown, if you complete this act, it will change your children and your grandchildren. Their lives will be riddled with drug addiction and multiple issues and trauma and problem and so forth. And that's what I'm saying. The suffering isn't just limited to the people in the blast radius when this happens. The suffering goes on and on and on. And I, I think it'd be great if we could choose not to suffer. It'd be great if future generations could choose not to suffer. But yeah, it's, it's a hard sell for me that we sign up for this. It's just a mighty hard sell. Well, it's similar to cancer. My, my mother-in-law died of cancer and they would always talk about how like the whole family ends up, you know, dying with her, you know, when you go through that. And it's true, like my, my wife, everybody just felt like they were all just sick and dying. And it's like you said, it's not just the person, but it affects everybody. Same thing with a suicide attempt. You know, even if you think it's just this, this selfish act, but it, it's, it's selfish because of the fact that you're affecting not just the people that love you and the people who miss you, but you're affecting those people that they interact with because there's going to be some trauma that's going to have some effect on those interactions. So, yeah, I mean, it's all super interesting. I know I've been calling on Miriam for about an hour now. Miriam, do you, do you finally want to uh, j- jump in? Oh, yeah. Hi, everyone. Thank you for having me. And uh, for those who don't know me, I'm an investigative journalist best known for directing the film Vanishing of the Bees, now narrated by... Elliot Page, and I'm also a functional medicine consultant. So um, 
it's nice to know that uh, heaven is, there's no cancel culture in heaven. And uh, <laughs> when I started studying NDEs and OBEs and reincarnation, let, let's remember for the audience, I'm sure you guys all know that it was removed from the Second Council of Constantinople because then people would have ample chances, the church can control the people, so they removed reincarnation, arguably. Now, of course, uh, the Ministry of Truth is trying to say that that never existed. So before I jump into my NDE, I had a spiritual awakening at 13 when I went to Sunday school and learned that Mark was a boy in our class, was hit by an 18-wheeler and dragged across um, the street and then eventually was in, was in a coma and then he died. And I became obsessed at 13 listening to um, Art Bell and trying to do out-of-body experiences. And I got really close. And then as I was doing it one night, I heard a voice saying someone else might come in to your body. And that was not a 13-year-old's thought. And it freaked the hell out of me and I stopped doing it. Uh, the boy that died, I would commune with him and talk to him, ask him where he went, and ended up having lots of magical experiences, um, starting with being in Cuba many years and had just prayed and asked where he was. And there were two people on the beach, two girls, and they asked me my ethnicity and they asked me if I was Indian. I said, I'm Egyptian. And uh, this is in Cuba. She's like, oh, I used to know a boy, an Egyptian boy, but he was hit by a truck. And it turned out she was in his class and she got to tell me about the memorial. And uh, then flash forward, um, I was 29. And my height of my, uh, um, what's it called? You're 29 in astrology, your Saturn return. And I was outside of the Bodhi tree. And I was hit by an SUV at 35 miles an hour. And they dragged me into the um, adjacent. So... I left my body and I became nothing and everything. And I heard the words noti setum, which I'm not pronouncing, but it's, it's know thyself. And uh, came back into my body and made sure not to lose consciousness because I wanted to report on what was happening. And uh, flash forward, uh, I, I spent a week in the hospital. I broke many bones. I had a outfitted with a, uh, metal rod, 13-inch metal rod. And uh, when I left the hospital, um, everything seemed really crisp. And, and uh, I heightened my intuitive skills. We all have intuitive skills, but I went to the California School of Psychic Medicine and learned how to ground. Uh, lights would go off. Um, and it's only amped up my psychic skills, which is not easy to, to share to but I have visionary skills. And then I went on to make Vanishing of the Bees because I was kind of floating aimlessly and asked, please make, let me be in service and, and let me do something with my life uh, that's bigger than, than me. And the bees flew into my life and I made Vanishing of the Bees. And then I was a digital nomad and I was going to Greece and flash forward, I'm in Delphi where the bee goddesses were. And I saw on the on one of the, uh, the artifices, it said, know thyself, which is know thyself. And I, I really believe that I'm here to just 
um, practice mindfulness, and and I think that's what's missing: self awareness. To be like, I just acted like a, a dickhead. I'm sorry, and put our ego aside, and really gain some self awareness as opposed to blaming. And that's what's missing in this spiritual warfare: just taking responsibility and realizing that conflict occurs so that we can grow. Um, later on, I worked with someone, and I, she was channeling my higher self. And we were going through, and there was someone. I looked into their eyes. They were not a good person, and I realized that I was looking at myself. And that realization of like, oh, I haven't always been a, a benevolent human. I've been shitty, and that's how we learn. And having um, visions of near death um, of other lives where I've either committed suicide um, or had mental illness. And uh, I, I just believe that we sign up for certain lessons. And it was very clear to me, do you want to learn your lessons now? Do you want to keep coming back? And that's why I want to make the most out of my life. And there's so much more than we can touch and see. So, yeah, thank you for sharing. I'm just going to see if I missed. I, I put some notes. Oh, when I, was get, when I got hit of the now defunct Bodhi tree, uh, when I was 13 and Mark died, I was reading out on a limb and the Bodhi tree became a, a refuge. I would go to that bookstore. So it was ironic that I was outside of the Bodhi tree. And I was also reading the book that maybe Dave um, might know and, and, and his wife or, or Mike, Old Souls. <laughs> and the irony of this professor who comes from Montreal, where I'm from, was going to these battle zones like Lebanon and speaking to these children that would say, you're not my mother, or I was a mechanic, and would then be gathering anecdotal evidence in different places, just making the possibility indisputable that these kids had come back. And so that was ironic that that happened. So yeah, that's my story. Thank you. I love it. I love it. Peter, do you have um, a story you wanted to tell as well? I do. I want to start by saying that one of the aspects of near-death experience is that everybody comes back with partial knowledge. Nobody comes back with the whole picture. It's impossible for any human being to contain the whole picture because the divine is unlimited infinity. And that kind of knowledge is beyond our brain's capacity. And so any conflicts that we have as near-death experiences or mystical experiences of other kinds is basically because we have limited capacity inside our brains. It's not because our souls don't understand. It's because our bodies don't have the capacity to understand what our souls know. And, and I say this because when I was 21, this is 1980, I went ice climbing in Canada in Banff Provincial Park, and I died. I froze to death. I made a mistake. And the mistake cascaded through the night. It was March. And uh, I went through increasing frostbite and in frozen parts of my body and uh, hypothermia advancing. And sometime before dawn, I realized that I was not going to survive. I had a climbing partner and he was in the same situation I was. And we were about 150 feet up from the bottom of the climb and the rope was stuck. And I realized that I was going to die there and there was nothing that I could do about it. And so I had been not in a panic, but I had been 
um, emotionally stressed to an extreme all night while I kept my head level in order to uh, drive myself forward for survival. And when I reached the place in my hypothermia with the rope stuck that I opened my coat and because I was hot, I knew that this was a bad thing, but I did it anyway. And a, a peacefulness came over me and I was suddenly not afraid of dying. And I began to fall asleep and I would fall asleep and I'd, I, I was harnessed into the mountain. I would crash against the mountain and stand back up again because I was on a ledge. And this last time I stood up, uh, I, I went through per my peripheral vision became like a spotlight on a stage that went from a wide space very quickly to a narrowing down of my, my vision into a, a pinpoint and then it went black. And when it went black, I expected to fall asleep, but I didn't. I, I, my consciousness remained awake and I didn't feel myself fall, and I couldn't understand what was going on, and the mountain in front of me vanished, and my vision expanded, and I saw a, a, a vast eternal darkness that stretched into infinity, and far in the distance was a pinprick of light, far, far, far in the distance, eons of distance away from me, and it, 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 it illuminated instantaneously, and it rushed toward me faster than the speed of light, and it filled my vision as it came to me, and it communicated to me telepathically, I'm taking you, and I resisted. I was like, no, you're not taking me. I don't understand what's going on, but I'm staying here, and, and I put all my willpower up as a blockade against it, all the will that I had driven for the last well, for 24 hours of, of trying to survive, I, I took that strength of, of, of will and, and it, was, it was as if it was a thin piece of poor glass and it just shattered. And this entity reached through into me and took me. And, and instantaneously, I was content and I was enveloped and I was carried and it was speaking, it was a, I call it my angel of death, but it was it had no wings. It, it was intellect. It was intellect and 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 strength and um, power, and it enveloped me and it carried me inside. And I was relaxed, and I was carried up the tunnel, which was paradoxically the width of the universe and narrow at the same time. And I was popped out inside a nothingness and the nothingness was a was, everything I say is paradoxical and everything I say is metaphor uh, because there's no language for this and it, well there's a language for it the language is is metaphor and it's been used by mystics across the world and every culture for as long as human beings have been writing these things down and so I use metaphor and I was in a, I was in a nothingness and I was nothing, but the nothingness I was in was a vast fullness of presence. And I was an orb of consciousness that was 10,000 times bigger than my body. And I had no brain, and so I thought faster. And my thinking was my seeing, was my smelling, was my hearing, was my, was my self. I was no differentiation in myself. I was one entity. And I remembered, this is who I am. This is what I am. This has always been what I am. I had forgotten myself. And, 
and as I was there, the there was a portal that opened in front of me, and this portal was light, and it was flowing light, and it was like liquid, and it was transparent and translucent and solid at the same time. And I could see into it and I could see this vast distant tunnel that's stretching off into the distance. And I knew that I was to be called into this. And I, I, I felt a, a compulsion and a desire to touch this with my being. And I touched this with my being and it flowed into me. It flowed into me and all life all living, all intellect, all knowledge, all beauty, all, all joy and, and absolute understanding entered into me. And, and, I, and all these things I describe in a chronological order, but they all happened at the same time. This is, I was in a place of timelessness. And it wasn't, wasn't timeless like, it was timeless like the eternal now, but it was timeless like all time that could physically exist in all of the multiverses, all moving forward and backwards and, and looping and twisting all in one place at the same time. And, and I, 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 I went through a hell to swing this around to where we began this. I went through a hell of my own making. I went through my life review was to experience all of the suffering that I gave everyone in my entire life from their point of view as they experienced it, as I gave it to them, only it turned out that it was 10,000 times greater than I thought it was when I gave it to them, only I didn't give it to them. I gave it to myself. All of the pain that I gave away in my life, I gave to me. And meanwhile, as this, as my life review was going and I was judging myself as guilty, but not because of what I had done, but because I could compare myself to the infinite love that was speaking inside me saying, I love you. I made you. I, I've always loved you. You are my beloved. I forgive you. I love you. I love you. I love you. And the love that I had given away in my life and that I had collected in my life allowed me to turn to the light itself. And in the instant that I turned to it, I became that. I became that. I wasn't, I wasn't the fullness of infinity because infinity was beyond me, but I was infilled with love and beauty and understanding and joy. And I heard my name called, only it wasn't Peter, it's the, the name of my soul the created unspoken essence of my being from the very moment of my creation. And I saw my creation and I was like a singular photon, superpositioned. I was part of the great collection of all the photons. If you imagine all of the stars and all of the universe collapsed into a, a, a single black hole, but they're not a black hole, it's a white hole. And, and out of this emanates all light and this, I was a particle of this light, and I could see the long tail, the everlasting, eternal long tail of my soul, myself, that was eons in age. And I could see other lives that I had lived in, in and I, but I couldn't tell whether they were in a sequence because I was in timelessness or whether they happened simultaneously. And now I can't see what they are, but I could see them then. And I understood that I was created and that I was in the presence of creator and that I did not make myself. And I was in the state of union that was adoration and bliss and wholeness and healing and wellness and joy and understanding and intellect and knowledge and anything I wanted to know, everything I wanted to know. I wanted to know everything about the universe. I knew in an instant 
I knew all of it downloaded into me. I understood cosmology and molecular science. I understood physics. I understood biology. I understood everything. And, and then I said, am I dead? And the voice said to me, I, could, I, I knew, okay, I need to explain this. I could, I could see into infinity, but I could not see infinity. Infinity was beyond my sight, but my sight was as if it went that far, but it was too, infinity was too far away. But the heaven that I was in was the divine. It wasn't, there wasn't a separation. Heaven wasn't a place. It is the divine being. It's the body of the divine being. And it was very present to me, but I could not see any form of it but it spoke inside me. I heard the voice outside me. I heard the voice inside me without language, direct communication, no concepts, just knowledge. Boom. And, and the voice said, yes, you're dead. And I said, well, I can't die now. Uh, voice said, why? I said, because my mom's suffering because my sister had run away when I was a kid. It was like suffering a death, but there was no body. And so my mom had a long extended breakdown which I witnessed as a kid, which is why I was not in Boston. I was out in Montana uh, going to school to get away from the pain. And, um, and in the instant I said that, I was swept to the edge of the universe where, where, the, where, where our universe is created and the divine presence is. So there's this like area of in between and I could see all of earth all at once, every single human being, seven, billion people each, not like one at a time, but I could see them all simultaneously doing everything that they were doing, sex and war and eating and sleeping and birth and death all at once. And everything is covered by a veil and the veil prevents them from seeing this thing that speaks to me and says, in the way that I love you now, I have always loved you. And it exploded into this expanse of eternal love that I cannot express here. It was, it's love, it times, it's the size of the universe times a billion. It's so much love. And it, it was always was, is, and shall be. I am the beloved one. And every single human being is the beloved one in the same way, particularly loved. And they can't see it on earth. And I could see my parents' faces and I could see their suffering of their life to come without me. I could see their suffering of their life to come with me. And, and the voice said to me, if you wait a moment, they'll be here because I'm in timelessness, their lives will end and they'll be in the same healing of non-suffering, the forgetfulness of suffering. They will have this too, but I could see their life without me. And I said, because I knew that I was beloved like, like, I like there is no suffering there. There's just no suffering at all. There's only bliss. And I said, if, can I go back? If, if I, if I go back, can I come back here so I can alleviate my parents suffering while they live? And the voice says, I want you to stay, but you can go back. I said, well, I choose to go back. And the voice said, Okay, I said, I choose to live my life. And the voice said, you won't live your life and sent me back. And in the moment that I was sent back, in front of me appeared, and I describe it like the butt end of a cable of a suspension bridge. There's all these individual cables, but, but they're fiber optics. 
and there's a million of them. And in the very center of this cable of, of all these collection of thin wires is, is the divine light itself. And it, and it, it, it's intensely bright and it, it expands to shadow at the far edges. And I was told to choose, choose your path, choose your entry point. And in an instant I had to make a choice. And I remember thinking, wow. I like my bohemian life. I want to be, I want to write. I want to live a life of an artist. I, I choose this entry. And it wasn't in the divine presence center. It was off to a corner of it, just above it on the outside. And I entered into this and, and, and I saw all of the probabilities of my life, not just on the journey that I'm on, but all of the probabilities that I could have had and all of the paths that were presented to me. But once I entered into that, this particular one, I had all these choices to make. Once I, I entered into my life, and I, 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 I'll come back to that in a second. And the next thing I knew, I came down this tunnel, and I got reduced into size, and crushed, and smushed, and shoved, and twisted, and put back in my pain, my body of pain. And I slowly came to consciousness with the first experience of understanding suffering, because my feet were blocks, uh, literally blocks of ice. My feet were frozen solid. I, I still have all my toes, still have all my fingers, but I suffer frostbite. I suffer pain all the time. I live, I live that day every day um, because I'm always in pain with it. And as I came to consciousness, my partner was screaming. I didn't understand language. My, my capacity of my brain came back online and I eventually stood up he helped me stand up and when i became back able to understand language he was screaming at me that i was dead you'd been dead and that he was going to die and i pulled the rope and the rope came through in the first pull and we descended and uh, we treated we self-treated for hypothermia and frostbite because i was on the national ski patrol and so i was a trained wilderness responder and what i was going to say is is that i i live with deja vu every day all day long my experience of life is sort of, I live a lightly dislocated in time. In that, I have free will choice. I get to make decisions on which way my life goes, but they were all probabilities. They were all, all of the decisions I were make, I make in my life were all a set of probabilities. And the fact that I'm in this moment right now is a result of all of the choices that I've made in my life. But if I had made a left turn yesterday instead of a right turn yesterday, I would have not been in this particular spot, but I still would have been in the right spot because it would have been a probability that became manifest as a fact. And so in my, in my life as I live it, and I'm going to, as Miriam said, uh, I, I, I've been practicing meditation for 40 years. I began my practice uh, before I died, and I've continued it since. Uh, I'm Peter Panagore. You can find me on YouTube, uh, not church, no doctrine, no dogma. No bullshit, just mysticism. And I've spent my entire life in pursuit of the divine. And I can, I can definitely say this, is that the practice of meditation, it changes the story we tell ourselves by silencing it. And when the mind becomes silent, it becomes a, a permeable to the divine light. It's not just living mindfully, which is a really great thing. You live mindfully in your life, but it also becomes the portal through which we enter the divine. And the, the biggest change that happened in my life 
as a result of this, besides all the mystical experiences that came uh, subsequent to this, was that I didn't go to architecture graduate school. I went to Yale Divinity School to study mysticism, and I spent my career uh, studying the mystics around the globe in order to, to, to help myself understand how to access my journey back into the divine. And the one thing I want to say uh, before I stop is that meditation really is the key. If you want to access the divine inside you, that's the only way. The only way out is in. And, and I became, I got ordained in the United Church of Christ. I'm a reverend, but I never fit the bill because, because when I was dead, God had no religion. There, were, there was, in this, this world that we live in that's all divided with tribes fighting against each other, that, that helped us through the centuries when we were populating the earth because tribalism is how we survived. But now that's such a crazy idea because we are all, each of us, and, and this is one of the side effects that I have, is I see the light inside of everyone, good or bad, whether they're doing bad things or good things, it doesn't matter. They are, I see the divine light and I don't see it just with my eyes. I see it with my whole, my whole body sees it. And this, the, the separation that we have, a political separations and economic situation separations and the desire for the pick for the big house with the, with the fancy car. And that's none of that matters. The, the only thing that matters is love and love is the key. Love is the answer. Love is the treasure. And love comes in 10,000 different ways. And sometimes love's conflicted. And sometimes love's difficult. But in death, it becomes pure. Pure as each of us is. And that's where I'll stop. Thank you so much, Peter. That, that was an amazing story. L Leslie, thank you so much for joining us. If people haven't checked out a amazing documentary called Surviving Death on Netflix now. That's uh, Leslie's work. And uh, would you like to, I mean, that documentary hits on, that series hits on a lot of the topics we, we've discussed today. Could you give us kind of just a rough idea of what led you down that journey of exploring these topics? Yeah, I'm just kind of still reeling from listening to Peter. That was really profound. And thanks. I just feel privileged to have heard, heard all of that. Um, so uh, what led me down that path? Well, you know, I don't know if you all know that I've been reporting on UFOs for more than 20 years and sort of in the background of all the time I've been working on UFOs, I was also very interested in questions of consciousness and survival, but from a journalistic perspective. Um, and so, um, you know, I'd spent so much time with UFOs and then I was with a close friend who died, which was a very empowering a very powerful experience for me i had a lot of questions about consciousness i've had them for a long time and after exploring the question of you know are we alone in the universe at least in the way i explored that question um this sort of seemed like the next natural question for me to jump into in turn and my it's also because i was given the opportunity to write another book and this seemed like the topic that i wanted to explore so it's just something that I've, I've really been interested in a long time. And, and the way I got into it was through the door of the work of Ian Stevenson and Jim Tucker, who were studying cases of small children who remembered past lives that were then verified to be accurate. And that really piqued my interest because in approaching this as a journalist, you know, that was very black and white. I mean, they said these things, they were documented. 
Nobody knew anything about anything that they were talking about. And then afterwards, they find out that it was all accurate. And it's, it's, um, these cases were just remarkable in terms of evidence for reincarnation. And that, that really got me going on it. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know if that answers your question, but, um, and then the book was also a lot, there's a lot of research in it from a lot of different areas, but it was also very personal for me because things happened to me while I was writing the book that kind of took me on a personal journey as well, which I brought to the book as, as, as along with the research. And then it ended up in this, this series on Netflix was based on my book, but it's quite different than my book in a lot of ways. Um, so that was, yeah, that was another thing that happened as a result of my book having been written. Can I, can I jump in and say that, that your series has having a major impact in uh, America today and probably around the world because you're you're exposing so many more people to the important message. So thank you. Yeah, that's what I'm happy about doing. And I think that's what the series is doing. It's just and it's also giving people permission to take their experiences seriously and to validate them and to talk mm -hmm. about them. Mm -hmm. As well as giving the message that there is survival, as you know, or at least it's worth considering that possibility. So yeah, I think it's had a lot of positive effects and I'm really happy about that. Thanks for saying that. Yeah. Well, hey, Leslie, how about sharing some of your personal experiences? Uh, hey, Alan. You know, you've had a couple. Hi, how you doing? Yeah, like which? Uh, what kind of? You mean for the, the one I can't? The one I what? Either the the physical mediumship I love, or uh, you know, after death communication. I mean, you're kind of playing it, playing it off a little bit. You've had some pretty strange experiences. I've I've having had some strange experiences. I'm sure many people in this panel have. I don't even know how many people are here or who's here. But my friend Mike Anthony is here who was also part of the Surviving Death series. And um, he's experienced some of the, well, if we talk about the physical mediumship, I don't know what to talk about. Um, are people interested in physical mediumship here? I mean, but one of the things I cover in my book is mediumship, both physical and mental mediumship. And I think mental mediumship is what people are most familiar with, which is where you go to a re uh, sit down with a medium and then they bring through information from a, a deceased loved one. And hopefully that information is accurate and you can have a sense of connection to that deceased loved one. And then there's another kind of mediumship called physical mediumship, which is much less known, um, where the medium actually goes into a trance state and physical manifestations occur in the room. And it's with a group of people um, and I worked with this one medium in England called Stuart Alexander. The problem with physical mediumship is there's a lot of fakery and fraudulence and, you know, things that are kind of on the, on the borderline of that. And it has a very bad reputation throughout history, but there, I don't think most people know that there have been some amazing, well-documented and very authentic physical mediums in the past who have been documented by Nobel Prize winning scientists and people like that. And I talk about those in my book too. I mean, I spent an hour talking about all this. So I'm trying to be succinct, but just to, to bring you up to the present. So I, I spent about five years with a physical medium in, in England by the name of Stuart Alexander, who's been practicing physical mediumship for about four, 50 years now, I would say he's in his seventies and yeah, about 50 years. And it's, it's absolutely authentic. There's no question about that. And I'm not gonna waste time explaining all the ways that I know that, but I'm happy to, to do that if anybody wants to ask me or it's, it's also in my book. Um, and so 
so Alice wanted to know about the weird experiences. So that's really what's of interest. I'm just trying to give it a context. <laughs> um, but one of the weird experiences that happens with Stuart, um, and it, it, there's a lot of different things that happen. It's really the focus is on um, connection to the to the afterlife and communications from people that are dwelling in that realm. And one of the ways that happens is um, there are actual physical um, um, materializations that occur in his seance room. And one of them that's one of the more, the one that happens more often is the materialization of a hand. And so uh, what happens is that ectoplasm is excreted. Now people may think ectoplasm is, is, doesn't even exist, but it is an energy substance. It does exist. And I've seen it. And Mike Anthony in this has also seen it. Um, and it's been documented to exist. So what happens is the, 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 the ectoplasm will come out of the medium. And in this particular case with the hand, I'll tell you exactly what I've experienced as have many others is that I'm, I'm sitting on a table opposite Stuart, who's the medium. And there's a red light. The, the room is dark, but the table is lit up with a red light. And you can see a cloud of ectoplasm come over the top of the table, sort of looks like water almost. And you can actually see it, it starts to get digits, and then you can actually see it kind of morph into a physical hand. And then it bangs on the table, so you know that it's physical. The other thing that happens is uh, I'm able to actually hold that hand. So I was able to hold this materialized hand and touch it, and it felt like a human hand, although it was large and very, very soft skin and very warm. But it's just like, it's a materialized human hand is what, what's happening in there. Um, and then, so then, so yeah, you can see it, you can touch it, and then it, it, it uh, retreats back off the table and kind of morphs back into the ectoplasmic substance, substance that it was originally. Um, and it is an amazing experience. Um, and it is weird, like Alex said, but it's real and it happens and it's been happening in his seance room for many, many years and many people have witnessed this. And it's pretty amazing to touch a, a materialized hand that the spirit being whose hand it is, is talking to you while this is happening through Stuart and explaining that this is his hand and he's telling you when you can touch it. And, you know, you've got to be very careful to do everything the way so that you're not uh, damaging, you know, doing anything you shouldn't do that could be dangerous. So he, so it is, it is the hand that belongs to somebody who is speaking through Stuart, who everyone in that seance room knows he's a personality named Walter and everybody knows who he is. And so this is him manifest. He's putting his etheric hand into the ectoplasm and then creating a physicality, a physical hand that can be seen and touched. So I don't know if that's weird enough for everybody, but that's <laughs> something that's really interesting. Hearing all these personal stories, something that I, I find really fascinating is how similar they are to people who do psychedelics like DMT. And there are some people who talk about how when you die or you have near death experiences, your brain will actually release DMT. And I mean, I don't know if anybody knows anything about those type of things and, and if it's related. I feel like this is the whole reason that I'm here right now. <laughs> um, but what psychedelics? Well, it, it, I've I've had a near death experience. I've had uh, uh, a couple of them actually. I have no reason whatsoever to be here right now. When I talk about it, I talk about it as I'm in the bonus round, and I have been for at least 15 years, if not 25. Um, 
but the uh the the parallels are immense and i really wish mary helen was still here because the first time that i died it was an overdose um it was a heroin overdose and i was gone for a almost a minute like full minute no pulse no heartbeat was resuscitated back and, and there was no like walking through a tunnel there was no bright light there was no seeing loved ones or anything like that but there was a tone and the i like in my whatever there was left of me felt compelled to follow the tone like try and and find out what it was get get to wherever it was emanating from and when i felt like i was getting close to that point is when i came back into consciousness that was the first time um between that and the second time when i had a, a near-death experience um i had had complete ego death and soul rebirth through dmt um and through ayahuasca and a couple other psychedelics <laughs> as well um because you know options uh and uh and the it was more i guess it was more um i was more aware of what was going on and i was i was there wherever there is longer on the dmt significantly because 10 to 12 minutes of that versus short of a minute uh of the actual death you have a little bit more time to think about what's going on and absorb it um I am. I'm fascinated by the the like the tonality concept and the different tones. Aside, really would like to follow up with her. Um, but there's there's a an all encompassing sense that you're being given a lesson, and I think that that for some people it's perfectly clear, and some people can come back and describe it 100 detail. For other people, it takes a lot longer to have the had to be able to put it all together uh even to be able to come out of this sort of shock that you're in when you receive something like this or you go through something like this yeah just uh, to say one other thing about that uh we have lots of people who have died while on a psychedelic uh so for instance a young man who was on lsd having a terrible um, trip and uh, he, he died. He fell face first and died. And he described that he, and then he had a near death experience and his thinking was the typical uh, clear thinking that we hear often described in near death experiences, you know, thinking more clearly, more, more quickly than he ever had before in his life. Um, and, and then later on at the hospital, he's resuscitated and the LSD is still in his body. Uh, so he, he's now hallucinating again. Oh, man. So this, yeah, so he goes from a hallucination to dead uh, to hallucinating again. And later on, you know, he described how he, he could very clearly tell the difference. It was, it, it was very stark, the difference between his hallucinations and this near-death experience where he's dead and out of his body and very clearly perceiving everything that's going on. Bruce, did you have anything you wanted to jump in on? I know you. we've talked a little bit about life and all this stuff. And anybody else, Cosmic Keys or Graham, if you guys want to jump in, you guys have been kindly waiting. So if you have anything. But Bruce, yes. you want to jump in? Thank you. I uh, am just so intrigued about, and I've studied a lot about this, I haven't experienced anything like this. 
um, how the the conclusion uh, of how empowered we might be to 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 an extent that regular life and regular folks don't discuss, and we can tra- through these stories how playfully we should be living, and the the power to take from it is possibly. Um, embracing a hundred percent responsibility to imagine in, in ways bigger than, than, than it's possible because it's the kind of knowledge that we can't know with these brains, how much having a human life is intentional. I'm going to fight to frame this into a question that might be picked up by those who've experienced things and, and thought about it longer than I have. But whether we are the one and only spirit that is infinite and eternal and love and unharmable at playing a human life for the fun of it or individual human, individual eternal spirits that take on a human life as the challenge that it is, is fascinating Either way I look at it, it comes down to 100% responsibility for having a human life and 100% responsibility for uh, all that happens. And from experiences like those we've heard tonight or from the literature of the mystics and the other humans who are trying to articulate this, this same thing, that the intent to love and embrace everything no matter what, to not judge anything as unlovable. Um, A a quick little story and then throw it out to see what that might cause if I was articulate. The story of the Nazi concentration camp survivor who was asked, so many died around you in despair. How did you survive? And he said, they could beat me. They could starve me. They could make me sleep in the snow, make me sleep on concrete, but the guards couldn't make me stop loving them. I hope I made a coherent point that could elicit a response. I agree, man. Graham, do you want to jump in? Anybody can want to jump in, talk about what Bruce did or whatever they want. I don't really have any questions, mainly just uh, thank everybody for sharing their experiences and, and that this is such an important podcast, like Sam and Alex were talking about at the beginning. I mean, Alex has been fighting this, this battle against kind of materialism for a decade, you know, at least. And I mean, this is the, the materialism, like we're in here talking about the intricacies of NDEs and the afterlife and communication and, and the other side of us, the materialistic paradigm is out there just going on and on and on like they have been. I mean, it's falling apart, thank the gods. But I think this is a really important conversation. And this, this, you guys articulating all these experiences and the thousands of other people that are coming forward, just like the UFO sightings and a lot of the other things we talk about, the amount of people that start to feel comfortable with sharing these experiences will just start to uh, crack open that dam of materialism more and more and more. I mean, it can only last so long before it starts to shift. I'd like to say say that I think, well, our experiences, one thing that I'm observing is that humans really need to contend with their mortality. That's why the Rona has been so impactful because there's this 
fear of death, which for whatever reason at an early age, I became really fascinated. My first story as a journalist for the Montreal Gazette was going down in the crematorium and meeting the man that governed the the retorts. And I remember looking at a bucket of metal pieces and, and picking up a hip joint and going, oh my God, I would never want that in my body to flash forward having a 13-inch metal rod. But But I feel like maybe I react differently. Maybe you have because I don't see death in the same way. I see it very much as a part of life. And it's like, what's the point of living in fear? Then you're not really living. So I wonder if your experiences have impacted others to kind of look at life and death in a different manner. I think we all are experiencing many different things. But the, the real secret to all of this is, I think we're eternal. And there really is no reason to fear death. It's just that it's just that stopping point in between the next section. And so the reality is we're eternal. Why would you fear death? Because it's just another moment. And as long as we start listening to Peter's story and Marianne's story and our story, you realize that the real answer is always love and that we're returning back as a spark of love that we were created. Yeah. Birch, real quick, and then I want to go to Dan. Birch, you kind of have a, um, you know, you kind of helped me with this, what Rona represents and, you know, with abundance versus scarcity. And we were, we were discussing on what I feel like is a uh, paradigm change in my head about life and death. But real quick, could you kind of get into how they use death as a leverage against the scarcity of life to scare people? Yeah, I mean, we can see it all around and it's uh, designed to make the offer that they're presenting to us more attractive, right? The more mayhem that's around, the more we're likely to accept, um, you know, some kind of solution from, <clears throat> the authority, you know, and, but the idea that, uh, we're all struggling in this, I mean, I mentioned before the, our society, there's something broken about it. Right. And, and what I was getting at is that the, that brokenness isn't necessary for our, we can fix that part of it. I think, right. I don't think that a lot of the suffering, the unnatural death, the early death is necessary for our souls to learn what they're supposed to learn. Um, so it's like, that's our society kind of runs on this uh, deeply rooted kind of uh, malady or a missing of the mark, you know, or there's a root cause here somehow, you know, and <clears throat> it's based on, you know, whatever people kind of believe in mass becomes the way they operate in society, you know? And so we have this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of that if there's not enough uh, to go around and not enough life, you know, if we're talking about the scarcity of life, then we're all going to have to grab our own before someone else grabs theirs, you know? And that kind of conception, what we're really getting at here is what is value, you know? And, uh, <clears throat> when we uh, place life uh, in, when we value life based on its supply, 
and its demand, then life is placed on a sliding scale, you know? And so we can't do that. That may be the big mistake that we all make, you know, it's like that life, what, how do you measure one life against another? It's like with this uh, vaccine, some people are going to die. Like maybe it's less than the total amount that will die versus the alternative. But how many lives, where do you stop the count? Like what life is worth more than another, you know? And it just seems so crazy that we're in this situation right now. And uh, so it's like, yeah, um, there's not a limited supply. There's not a limited supply, right? And so if we think that, if we kind of invert our thinking about what's valuable, like if value is based on that the supply is running out, if that's what how we uh, apply value to life, then that's an inversion, right? Life is not running out. Life is continuing on. And so it never stops. And so this fear of death, uh, this idea that individually that we will die and that we need to protect our own lives um, and that we need to hoard and uh, bunker down. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, it just seems like that's uh, an inversion of where we really need to go. And, and it's like when gangsters meet in the movies, whoever draws draws gun first creates, uh, you know, um, a gunfight that plays out to the end, you know. And that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. If there's not enough, we're all going to act like there's not enough, you know. So it's like a flip. we got to flip the way we think about what is valuable, right? And uh, so, I mean, that's exactly what we have. And if you look back throughout history, um, it's always kind of the death and the threat of death that makes the offer that's coming look better, right? So if we feel like we have no choice. Um, and this brings up what we were talking about before, which was uh, the idea that um, nothing's going to change here on Earth. Like this is some kind of a, um, um, a mill, you know, of souls, like a soul mill in a way. You know, we come down here and we get wrung through the ringer, you know, and then we have to come back because we didn't figure it, figure it out. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work, you know. I think actually we come down here... It's like Maya Angelou said in her poem, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. Uh, she says that the rhythm is just another turn of the wind. It's not like this massive death blow that needs to come, you know? We can figure out a way together where we all can kind of figure, you know, like we can make this work. It doesn't have to be sick. And so what we have here is what's happening right now. It's just the classic threat of death and death in order uh, to, to make the offer look more acceptable. And we all have to refuse the offer in mass. I mean, we are the power, we are the value. There's no value without people, right? There's no value without people. And so when the value of our lives is put on a sliding scale, there's mm -hmm. something wrong with that. There's something wrong with that. I totally agree, man. They leverage death so that we all just beg to be saved so we can have because all we're told since the moment we're born is we only live once which makes life scarcity right yeah and then they leverage death against that hey uh hey dan did you want to go i know you've been sitting quietly yeah i'm just kind of enjoying the conversation um yeah i was thinking i'm kind of in agreement that death is kind of the um 
the fear of death is kind of how we're in this situation we're in globally today because so many people are maybe wrongfully so so afraid to die of this disease um but i think um what i wanted to bring up is that in i'm i'm curious what the experiencers have to say about this reality we're in here this meat suit this in like pop spirituality people use the word simulation or matrix and when i hear some nde stuff it sounds kind of like we are in something like that so would any experiencer say that their experience validates that kind of like simulation matrix nature of this space we're in right now not necessarily like the the divine space yes i would i live i live every day of my life looking from the outside through my head out into the world most of most of me did not come back and when i when i talk about um what it is to live in the world i use the matrix as an example uh because i i see the code i i see i see the divine light inside of birds and trees and flowers and people even bad people i see it inside of rocks and trees it's everywhere all the time and and i feel like i kept it a secret for 20 years I didn't talk about it because it, I didn't want to be thought of as a crazy person. And when I finally came out, uh, my life changed as a result. Here I am speaking out about it. But the, the, the experience of living in a very different reality than everybody else around me, that's, that's how it is. I feel like I see, the, I see the matrix. Most people around me have no idea. And so I mask. I, I've masked myself for most of my life in order to fit in. But the the truth is is that when I died the first time, I lost all my fear of death. And because I am not afraid of death, I have lived an incredibly dramatic and wild life. Crazy things have I've I've done in my life as a result. Um and I kept telling my wife when I well, she knew, but but um and I kept telling her that I'm not afraid of dying and so in 2015 I died again. I had a heart attack. And I died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And and as I was, I was in a yoga class, and I was like, ah, oh, I'm having a heart attack. Oh, this is my day. I I didn't when I woke up, I didn't know I got to go home today. And so I was pretty chill the whole experience. I was not afraid at all. I'm as in the in the emergency room here in the small town I live in, and all the nurses who I know and the doctors are all like all in a panic. And I'm like, I get to go home. I'm singing inside my head. I get to go home today, and I have no fear. I'm, I mean, I, I'm afraid of like dropping a cinder block on my foot. I'm afraid my kids are going to get hurt. I have those kinds of fears. But once you know that death is not the end, there's great freedom to love each other. There's great freedom to have fun. There's great freedom to express yourself in ways that you would never do before. But, I think I think I, 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 I'm gonna one last thing, Ricky. I'm sorry. The, okay. I think that the root of, of of societal trouble is the egoic mind. The 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 ego mind in every individual tells the individual that I am Peter. I'm Peter. I'm Peter. I'm Peter. And when that when you begin to see that you're not yourself then the barriers between people break down and they just vanish because I am you. 
I am, I am you and the divine self in you is the same divine self in me. And that's why we see the light inside each other because the light sees itself. And the more you see the light inside yourself, the more you see it inside others, and the more you realize that there's no difference between us. And sorry, Ricky, all lives matter. All, all every, it, it, and, and, and the weird thing is too, Sam, is that it doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter one single bit because we are we are human beings in this particular time period of the, of the geologic geological history of our planet. In, in the galaxy, in the universe, and I am just the size of a quark in comparison to everything else. I don't matter at all. I matter nothing. Uh, I was just going to say, couldn't you find peace? So I think, you know, one thing we keep hearing is finding peace and understanding that life doesn't end when this material uh you know, this, these bodies end, you know, so there's consciousness could continue and there's more, but couldn't you find peace and also accepting that maybe life does end, right? Like just accepting death in general, because I think in especially Western cultures, we neglect death. I always say like the one good thing that comes out of funerals and wakes is that it's that reminder of don't take each day for granted. Like we say that all the time, but we constantly do it. And then when you see somebody pass away, it's like that reminder, like, oh, crap, I'm, I'm waking up doing that con constant routine every single day. And I am taking every day for granted. And there's this, uh, this movie, not a very good movie, but I like the concept of it called In Time, where you could see how many hours you had uh, of your life on your wrist. And you could just look down anytime you wanted. And you could see that time ticking. And I, I always found that intriguing because I would think to myself, like, if you could see how many days and minutes and seconds you had to live, how different would you live your life? Like, would you waste that weekend, you know, doing overtime or would you waste that weekend or not waste that weekend doing overtime? You would, you would spend that weekend hugging your friends and your family and your loved ones and doing more laughing and smiling and then doing the things you, you enjoy and less of doing the things that really, you know, and I, I think that we've been kind of sold this lie and what I was born in Portugal and you, Western Europe, they spend much more time just relaxing company, uh, community things and 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 conversation and when you go out to dinner it's a four-hour event it's not a 30-minute event you know and um and we a lot of times people in america look at them like they're lazy like they 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 don't work hard they don't have all the material things we have but they're happier you know and and here we're constantly sacrificing all this time of 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 love and enjoyment with one another to get these material things that are temporary happiness. And then next thing you know, that happiness is gone. You have to move on to the next thing. You got to move on to the next thing. And all those things come at a price. And that price is, you know, minutes and hours and weekends of your life and less time with your loved ones. So um, anybody else? Sorry, I probably should have had a question. <laughs> I, I just wanted, if I could interject real quick, when I came back from my near-death experience, I was told... I was pretty miffed that I'd got yanked back. I was not pleased at all. And I was told, uh, you got 20 years, make the best of it. So that's been very helpful for budgeting finances. <laughs> I, I'd like to say that in, in respect to what you just said, Ricky, that I, I was noting in the notes that I am very acutely aware of, of time that I'll wake up in the night and just go, it's 3.36 and I'm usually within five minutes. And then I, I reflect now to two weeks to slow the spread. 
And it's like how adaptable we are. Like, oh, I'm going to wait till January 6th. I'm going to wait till January 20th. And it's like next thing you know, 2021 is gone. So really um, make the most of, of your life and, and enjoy it. I, I recently did a, a hypnosis and I didn't know that we were going to do a past life regression. And in the end, she's like, well, I'd like to offer you a midlife review. And I'm like, sure, put that in my cart. I mean, I didn't say it like that, but it, I thought it. And I was in a hip, hypnotic state. And then I'm like, wait a second, what is what are we doing? And she said, well, I'm going to nullify. You, you're not going to die, but you're, you're nullifying all your contracts. And um, I went ahead and did it. And then I, I got Stephen Johnson syndrome and, and almost died, which is a very bad allergic reaction. And my my skin all boiled up and, and it was like I I symbolically died. I had new skin. I had to peel. Um, but while we were doing the, the, re the regression, when we came to this life, I saw, I, I sometimes see words across my forehead and I just saw the word hijack and I got really, really angry and I felt like they've hijacked life. And I don't know if any of you who've, who study NDEs or if, you can relate that's something with this Rona regime they've life was challenging enough and now there's this burden and then I also just wanted to ask if we're typically taught that the the light at the end of the tunnel is is positive and when I did a, a dig they believe occultists that it's do anything but if you don't want to reincarnate just avoid the light because it's a trick so if, if you can maybe comment on that or the hijacking part of in regards to the Rona. I'd like to jump in on that if I, if I may. Is that okay? Uh, yeah. The unitive state of being is the dissolution of self and the, and the obliteration of self. And whether I don't know whether going to the light means reincarnation, but in subsequent mystical experiences and out-of-body experiences, uh, I've, I, I traveled much deeper into the oneness of being, and I, w I want to be nothing. I want to uh, be in the state of pure union, because in the state of pure union, I am no longer myself. Uh, if, if anybody, has anybody here ever had a Kundalini awakening where there's a flash inside yourself and, you're, and you are no longer present? In, in that kind of experience, the egoic mind vanishes altogether and you become the light itself. And when one becomes the light itself, there is no more reincarnation. There's only the divine presence. And um, that's what the mystics talk about, the mystical geniuses around the history of the world. That's the goal. Uh, and that's found in their writings, Cloud uh, of Unknowing, um, as a single example. Um, so as for me, I've heard that story that don't go to the light, but I've met ghosts who've not gone to the light and they've been stuck here. Um, and and I, I send them to the light so that they can continue to progress. But as for me, um, all I want is the light. I, I want the totality of the light. I want no more incarnations. If I, I, if I have a choice, I won't come back. If I have a choice, I'd rather I'd rather continue on my journey because I don't think evolution ends on Earth. I think that my soul continues to go deeper. How can you go into the center of infinity? It's a it's a constant, continuous journey, 
and that's the one I want. And I don't try to tell anybody what to do or, or tell anybody what to think or, um, but I know where I, what I, where I'm going and I know what I want and that's what I want. Charlie, you, you've been quiet all show. You want to, you want to jump in? just been absorbing all of this this is really heavy duty stuff i mean it's it gets you thinking about a lot of things i've i've done the dmt experiences and and had those sorts of things and you know you're you're looking for answers maybe on a different plane and uh i've never had anything like this happen to me i mean i've been around death before but not 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 had it happen in a situation where i was able to uh process this so i'm just I'm I'm just leaning back and listening on this one because this is this is really you know, it's just a, a good perspective check you know we get so bogged down and like oh you know I got to pay this bill and I got ah, you know we get all stressed out and then what an embarrassment right I mean to look back on all this after you've you've been through this heavy dutiness of it all. And you see, God, this stuff is so insignificant that we get all worked up about. I mean, I'm as guilty as anybody about that. So it's a nice little reminder that, um, you know, that that uh, we, if we prioritize sort of the big picture things like love and happiness and acceptance and these the good things, you know, that's that's where our, our energetic focus should probably really be. And we get pulled away and distracted with this nonsense. And it's it because it's it's our our life and it's real to us as we're in this moment and we have to do these things or else, you know, we'll be out on the streets and not paying our bills and things like that. So this this fight between dealing with the minutiae of day-to-day living and at the and at the same time trying to recognize and hold on to the fact that though it's important on some level it's completely insignificant on a more on a on a much bigger uh level and that is uh i would imagine that going through something like this has a profound impact on your perspective and your sense of priorities and maybe a, a good old near death experience um would benefit a lot of people, if at least if, you know, to kind of like a slap across the face or someone throwing a bucket of cold water on you, just saying, you know, snap out of it. Stop worrying about this, the, the, the small stuff. It's, it's, there's, you know, you're only here for a short amount of time. And uh, if you're worrying about that, then you can't be doing other stuff. And, and this is, this has just been a real, I think this has been the most impactful episode that we've done. I mean, it really is uh humbling and I'm so thankful that you guys all took a couple hours out of your night to to come here and and tell your really personal stories because it's uh you'll never know. You'll never know how what sort of impact that has on somebody. I have a feeling that I will remember some of these stories that you've told for a very, very long time. And that is uh that's valuable to me. So thank you all. Well one thing you see with like young people compared to older people, their perspective, you we're talking about how you know, sometimes you don't even need near death experiences. You just need to be closer to death. You know, once you're closer to that finish line than you are to the starting line, like you see with older people, right? Young people, they they strive to get that giant house. And then what, when you get older, what do you do? You strive to sell that giant house to get that little condo because you want to spend more time just doing the things you enjoy and less time, you know, living to support that house. And um, so I, I think when people pick up on 
these meanings and they look at things from um, these perspectives at an earlier age, you probably get to enjoy life a little better at, you know, and, and more years of your life. Because I think some people it is, it's when they're close to that finish line that they're like, holy shit, I've spent my whole life trying to get promoted or trying to get more ones and zeros in the bank account. And none of this means anything, you know, and, um, you know, like that saying, you know, you can't take it with you, you know, and, and uh, I think a lot of people think they can, <laughs> or at least they live like they think they can, you know, so anybody else, uh, Bruce, did you want to jump in? I did just how empowering these stories are to uh, f- free me from worry and, fr- and, and to, to imagine since it does, life does go on um, that, you know, we're, those who've had the experiences like jumper, like jumper cables, you know, if you didn't have a spiritual imagination beforehand, you got one now. And those who read and absorb and discuss these stories, it's about firing up the spiritual imagination. And it's kind of hand in glove with a countdown watch. Like if you saw that, oh, you got seven days left and you got three days left and you have 15 hours left, that's the classic tactic of having the skull on the desk, the memento mori, to remember you're going to go. And how would we orient hopefully in positive ways, more authentic ways to spend the time with the people that we love. But the, the, the conclusion is for, for my little chat right here is to learn more about this, to cultivate the spirit, our spiritual imagination and to bring it up more and more and more. Um, because maybe the, the rulers of the world who rule by fear through the secret societies and esoteric knowledge that they've passed down through the centuries, maybe they know to whatever degree, this is just a game. No one's ever really heard. After death, we revert to this unharmable spiritual thing that we are. And we, why or why ever we may have another human life or not. Um, if they know that, and for some reason they're playing the part of you know, abusing, maybe that explains their, their ruthlessness in a, in a sick way. You know, if they think, well, no one's ever really hurt. So while I'm on this planet, why don't I own all the money and have access to the beaches and all you all can just work for me and be my little lab rats in my medical experiments. Lots of, lots of ways of looking at the benefits of having a spiritual imagination that we go on after the uh, moment of human death. That kind of leads me to one of my questions about those people, the elite and the secret societies and then those that know that maybe, you know, there is another life. And you hear these in the conspiracy circles, you hear these theories about them uh, coming back purposefully into the same bloodline or to remember things that they've done. Or that's why, you know, it enables them to play this long, long game, you know, decade after decade, the long plans. I mean, do you, anybody that's had this experience, do you think that there's anything to that or is it? not possible i think anything's possible but i i've never heard of anybody remembering their life without a lot uh without a lot of work and um i think that the epigenetics is true you like the was said earlier about the the mouse experiment um i think that that's a the, the science is showing that that there's a reality to that but once you travel to the other side and you experience the divine nature the material world has no value. That's why, that's why people who are, who have near death experience, we are like, 
uh, the big house, uh, not so much. You know, it just doesn't matter so much. Um, so if there if if there are people doing that, uh, I don't know where it is that they go, but they didn't go where I went. Mm-hmm. Well, you ever you you guys know that Prince Philip quote, right? If he was reincarnated, he'd like to come back as a deadly virus to lower the population. How crazy is that, right? It's, <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, I I also just wanted to say, um, just like the whole NDE kind of like subculture because they have like conferences there's books it's it's like a whole world um and alex sakaris like your show kind of when i started listening to it like six years ago or so like learning about ndes was like a fundamental part of my personal spiritual journey literally just i feel like it's a really important sort of step one to make you think like, oh, what is this meat suit? What is my consciousness? What would it be like to pop out of my body? What are these hundreds of thousands of people reporting about it? What does that say about reality? So I just give props to anybody that shares their story or that promotes kind of the the NDE subculture because I know for me, it answered a ton of questions and kind of just just learning about it, not not having an NDE. Um, so, I just want to reiterate, it's a good thing to talk about. Do you, are you aware of Anthony Cheen Production, the YouTube channel, Anthony oh, Cheen Production? He's great. Sounds yeah. kind of familiar, yeah. He seems to interview predominantly folks who've had NDEs for the last year. At the end of the, for the last year, at the end of the day, I've just watch them over and over and over again with this soft piano music in the background, but it's the same impact of all your stories tonight. Anthony Cheen, C-H-E-N-E, production. There might be 20 such. Check it out. I agree. It gets me thinking, this is kind of a side joke, but back, I remember, you know, when you have those Sundays that maybe you're hungover and you just need to like zone out and calm yourself and just watch endless YouTubes. I've definitely like, that was like my hangover cure was NDE videos. For some reason that's like, (laughs) just puts you at ease and keeps your mind kind of still. And it's therapeutic for, for those types of days. Well, maybe with that could talk, touch upon why it's not embraced or accepted. And the fact that it was removed from the Bible, um, instead of, thinking that people would value their life more or not be so scared of death that it was used as a control tactic. If you have any comments, any of you on, on that, why isn't it, why is it so hard to think that it, with so many people you become part, you become nothing in everything and you go back into the collective. Why is that so hard for even scientists to grasp or accept? I feel like it gives life meaning then. I mean, right now, being this just a physical robot type thing, a physical bi- biological meat suit or whatever, is it just, you don't need meaning. You don't need purpose. You know? But if, you're, if you don't, you know, if you're going to encounter stuff on the other side, then it gives life meaning. We talked a little bit about suicide. I mean, that's a big part of what leads. You know, I've had Johan Hari on the show and uh, he did Lost Connections. And I mean, so much of depression and suicide and all this stuff 
is because we live a life without meaning. I mean, it's not, you know, we look at substances, right? So it's like, okay, you, you're an addict because heroin is addictive. It's like, no, no, no. If that's true, then why does one person do heroin at a party, never touch it again? Another person does heroin and ruins his whole life for it. it it's not the substance. It's the person. It's internal. It's not external. And, you know, I think the world that we've created, especially in, in America, is like just giving people just pointless jobs where they don't feel fulfilled and they don't uh and actually i think lost connections no that yeah i was lost connections i thought i would just want to make sure i got his book right uh, the other one i was thinking of too was sebastian who wrote the book tribe and that's another one that kind of hits on the similar topic um just in regards to people just needing meaning and it i i think that's a huge aspect of it i think people are self-medicating people are uh, you know, they're looking for purpose and we've just created a world where it's like, you know, we've told people like, if you go down this road, this road will bring you happiness. And, and all you need to do is get a good paying job and get the big house and get that new car and have the pretty significant other and you'll be happy. And people are going down that road and they're like, well, I'm not happy. I was supposed to be happy. So it's like, okay, let me drink. Let me buy this thing to give me all these temporary satisfactions. So we've kind of been sold a lie. And that's where I think like psychedelics, spirituality, and even in some cases, religion um, helps with people that wouldn't normally ask these bigger questions, right? So I have friends of mine that are Christian or Catholic or Muslim. And if they didn't have, you know, their their Bible, their whatever, their their, uh, ho- their holy scripture, scripture to, to read and kind of make them like look at things from the outside looking in like, okay, what's the point of all this? Why am I here? Is there a God? Is there not a God? Uh, what happens after we die? Like most of us would just continue with our everyday lives and never ask these questions. So I think in some cases, like religion has can do some good at just like spirituality or anything if it forces people to ask these questions, I think people do. I, I mean, personally, I don't need it to ask these questions because I'm just a curious person. But I think some people can get stuck in that everyday routine where you just don't, you just, you just live and then you die, and 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 that's fine, and they're content with that, and they they never ask those bigger questions. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with that artificial intelligent robot experiment where they had like two robots talk to each other, and it was just a matter of time before they started asking questions about God and the afterlife and all these things. So it's like almost inherent in us to you know even when you're creating this artificial intelligence, it's inherent that we ask those questions. Yeah, you mentioned that book about connection, right, and addiction. And I don't think it has to be connection with with other humans or people. It's connection with the divine, connection with your higher self, connection with you know whatever higher power you have. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, and that it, could be why there's all kinds of mental illness uh, in Western society is because the lack of that connection. You know? Yeah, I was just going to interject, picking up on Dan's point earlier. I love the NDE videos. And the other thing I've found that is kind of works in a really strange way is Dr. Jeff Long is a NDE researcher who's compiled the largest database of near-death experiences. And you can literally Google NDERF, which is his website. And then you can put anything after that and it'll search through these 3000 accounts. So you can do, you know, Bible, Christian, God, devil, Baphomet doesn't come up, by the way, in the 3,000. But I think it also gets to the question of uh, 
it, it's it's my take of it is uh, religion doesn't really come through very in a very. It's like okay if you have to go that way, but it, it's to your point, Miriam. I, I don't think it really supports the kind of uh, primacy of Christianity or the primacy of any religion. Religion seems to be uh, sort of a baby school uh, for people to start a starter spirituality. Mm. Um, there's a book, a new book out by Dr. Bruce Grayson called After. And he's uh, taken 40 years of his, he's a leading near-death experience <laughs> researcher. And uh, he's, it's just come out, it's I recommended. I, when I read the book, I saw myself in it. And it, it, I think it's going to have a major impact, along with Jeffrey Long's books as well. And the, I don't know if you all know about the International Association for Near-Death Studies uh, that is associated with the University of Virginia and Ian uh, Stevenson. And... Yeah, that's the man that wrote Old Souls, Ian Stevenson, who comes from Montreal, who studies and uh, teaches in America. He's quite old now. Is he still alive? I don't think he, I no, think he passed away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, had dinner with him one night, um, took me oh. up to dinner, um, visited him at his house. But he, along with these other people, the, the International Association for Near-Death Studies, holds annual conferences where NDEers from around the world come to uh, listen to the science around near-death experience and, and locating where the con where, what is the origin of consciousness. And most of these scientists, including Grayson, uh, they're skeptics. They didn't come at this as believers. They came at this as skeptics, which gives uh, a higher validity to their evidence, I think, anyway. And uh, what they're showing now is that there's a doctor named Sam uh, Parnia from, I think he's at uh, NYU, uh, Stony Brook. Stony Brook, and, yeah. Yeah. Uh, consciousness survives death for a period of time is his conclusion of the awareness study too. And he's a skeptic, but consciousness does not arise in the human brain. And that's really what they're searching for. And once, once science can prove the consciousness doesn't arise in the human brain, then a lot of people who are skeptics are going to start thinking uh, more seriously about what it is to be a human being. Mm -hmm. You know, you can't take it with you. There's one thing you can take with you, and that's love. And mm -hmm. and that is exactly what you were talking about before, Sam, about you know how they live in Europe, where the where they value relationship over over um, ownership. Have you seen the latest Thrive movie, Thrive Two, at ThriveOn.com? I haven't seen that. Check it out. Great exploration. These people for the last eight years of many cutting edge things, but consciousness included. Um, also Nassim Haramain's work have, if you haven't Googled any of his older lectures or even current lectures on consciousness and, and the state of physics today, Nassim Haramain. I'm, I'm curious, uh, Leslie, if you're still there, if you're ever doing a mediumship and the, the spirit, the, the loved one has reincarnated. I mean, you could be doing a mediumship, but the person is now in the physical again, I would assume. Has that happened to you? It hasn't. But what I've heard mediums say is that you can actually be, you're kind of in both places at once. So you can still contact somebody through a medium, even if they're reincarnated on this earth. Now, that's not that's never been my experience, but I've heard mediums say that that, that can happen. So I don't know. It's never happened to me. That's all. That's all I know. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty strange concept, though, to imagine that, you know, but it's sort of the concept that you're always this bigger, you're always at least part of something bigger than what you are when you're here on the earth. And so maybe you can tap into that bigger part of the person when you're doing the reading in some form. I don't know. I don't understand it. But um, Yeah, it definitely it was- makes you think about like the nature of time with all this because time seems linear when you're in the meat suit or whatever. But then if you're dreaming, time is really complicated. You could fall asleep for like 10 minutes and it feels like an hour or you could smoke DMT and then you're like buzzing and then everything is like time just totally turns into something else. So it's interesting when you're talking about mediumship being like so beyond, you know, the body, which is stuck in time, but the consciousness is sort of, accessible i guess it's so something like that but the the bigger essence of the person is not just in the physical even if they're incarnated in the physical something like something along those lines that's my direct experience yeah that's a that's how i live i the you know people talk about their higher self it's my higher self i'm like no that's my real self that's Mm -hmm. not it's not higher it's it's actual and most of me didn't come back most of me is still there and that's why i live this experience of like being an avatar in a in a machine all the time um because i perceive myself as not this yeah so if somebody went to a medium to try to contact you then maybe they would get to that higher self of you or that other you know the self that you're saying you're not by being here so that maybe helps Mm. illustrate what we're talking about Mm -hmm. i don't know i mean I don't know how it works with the mediums. I mean, if consciousness is non-local, which is what it, what we're talking about, then that means it's, yeah, it's outside of time, space time. And so it's possible theoretically that uh, uh, someone with the ability of mediumship is able to tap into that uh, field, that non-local field of consciousness. And, and so time is no longer a factor. And so they, they might be accessing, uh, yeah, I, I get that, that more full consciousness. That's the, not the, uh, not the, uh, the, the splinter of it. That's in that a human body in, in this incarnation. Mm. Right. Well, you guys, well, you, most of us, when we go to mediums, we're looking for a specific person, as you know, Mike, and we we're going shortly after they've died. And what comes through to us is the manifestation of that person as they were in their most recent life as we knew them. So that's what we're experiencing. But I've never, you know, it'd be hard to imagine that you would ever encounter anything beyond that at a, at a, at a reading when you're going to try to contact someone who's recently died. I don't know if that ever happens. But you usually, you know, have a very specific purpose in going to a medium mm-hmm. for a specific person. So it's, um, yeah, but it's true. I don't know what happened. Have you ever heard of a kiss situation? Anybody here where a medium says, well, the person you're trying to contact has reincarnated? Has anyone ever had that I think someone told my mom that one time. Really? I think, yeah. But whatever else they told her was like creepy accurate, but they did say, oh, your dad is incarnated now, but he says this. So, Were they able to tell her like, 
where and who that because if you could find that person if they if the medium could tell you well who are they in this in this new incarnation you might be able to go find them yeah i don't i don't she didn't tell me anything about that and it was a while ago but yeah that would be a cool thing though i mean that's what part of ian, ian stevenson's work was that he found that a lot of the kids that died in a traumatic way had not resolved or or their memories hadn't been erased so to speak and that's why they could pair them up from their previous life but if you think you know everything is the the body the spirit can recycle into another body i would think that it does occur that you go to a medium depending on the time frame and they're like well you think that's more realistic oh they've reincarnated they're not just in in the in between world I don't know. Usually, you go to you. You seek to when you go to a meeting, you're seeking somebody who's died fairly recently, and therefore they probably haven't yet reincarnated. And then you know that's more typically the case with mediumship, but not always. Sometimes people will contact somebody from way back. So, as Peter said, what I've heard with the medium that I work with mostly, I, I was you know uh, sort of testing mediums for a while, working on a documentary about mediumship. And as Peter said, what she says is that uh, you know when we're experiencing this human life through this brain, which is a lens that gives us a very directed experience, um, you know, we never take all of us, whatever we are, into any incarnation because the human brain isn't equipped to handle that much. Uh, energy or whatever the right word is. And so there's a part of us, as as Peter said, that he has direct experience of, that's always home, whatever word we want to use, that's always there. You know, and she puts a number on it. I think she said something like, you know, maybe we can take 30% of our full energy into any life. So if someone's coming to, to a medium uh, to talk to their dead father, it's conceivable, according to her, that an aspect of him Maybe 30% of him has ha, is indeed reincarnated, experiencing a human life through another human brain, uh, while another part of him is outside of this space-time, non-local, and still contactable. Uh, you know, if that makes sense. Well, are you guys familiar with Rupert Sheldrick? He's been on my show. We've talked about, yeah, I'm so, yeah, of course. Yeah. But that, yeah, the morphic resonance concept is interesting, how consciousness can all be connected and you know there's just so much that's still unexplained you know that's why when people say the science has settled it's just hilarious because mm -hmm. it's like science debunks science all the time it's it's like it's never settled you know it sounds like such an unscientific thing to say and uh it really is become its own religion you know science and, and materialism has combined we're just like science has become only things we think we understand right now and everything else is pseudoscience and uh so i think these conversations are important because it does uh, help remind you that i mean we're limited to our five senses you know and maybe some of these experiences taps into something that our five senses can't uh, understand or, or really uh just get what's going on or, or or maybe it breaks some boundaries or whatever it might be picks up some wave you know like an antenna picks up something that's there but we we on during our everyday experiences can't don't notice or neglect or whatever and then something happens and we pick up on it you know so it's um it's wild but uh, i think these deep conversations are are so important you know they're, they're super important so the benefit of uh 
lasting this long is we'll let everybody plug their websites and <laughs> their work <laughs> and, uh, and tell everybody where they can connect with them and, and any future things that they have going on. And um, But before I do that, Charlie, you want to add anything or do you want to jump right into the... No, let's let everyone just plug their stuff and um, and we'll and we'll leave it at that. Could could I could I jump in first? Because I'm on my phone and I'm getting alerts that I'm under fifteen percent battery. I hate to be this guy, but could I real quick? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. I I, uh, I met Sam a couple weeks ago online and was on his other shows because. I've got a my first book coming out. It's called God School, 9-11 and JFK, The Lies That Are Killing Us and the Truth That Sets Us Free. And you can read all about it at my website, brucedetaurus.com. This has been an honor, and I hope my battery lasts to the very end. Thank you. Bert, you want to jump in? Sure. Um, thank you, you guys. Uh, this was great. And I think we could talk more about this subject and relate it in ways to like maybe the human condition. Like we always talk about escaping this, the human or the earth realm um, by not reincarnating, reincarnating again. But perhaps there's a collective thing that we can do. Why, you know, like we can fix this place, you know. It's not just like, oh, I'm going to live my life and it's going to be all right and, and I die and that's cool. And I even heard Joe Rogan say, I heard Joe Rogan say, I'm, I want to come back. I got this shit wired, you know, and I'm not sure that's necessarily how it's supposed to go. You know, it's like um, having good life and just dying is not, ne I don't know, maybe that's just not it, you know. Maybe there's something more here, like maybe that we have to come together, all of us together all at once, you know, and I wonder about maybe this reincarnation thing has a beginning point, you know, like a whole bunch of us in the past uh, did something together all at once. And now we're all reincarnating over and over again. We got caught in this like loop, this like time loop, you know. And then with the idea that you could have a mediumship uh, with someone who was already reincarnated, maybe we are um, have met portions of ourselves already. But why do we come back? Why? Why do we come back? I mean, it's like I think that there's some kind of you could say that we're nothing or that nothing matters. But I think it really does matter what we do. What we do in life echoes through eternity, like you know, from the gladiator or whatever. But. Um, what we do really matters. It really, really matters. And uh, so, I mean, I don't know why I just went off on that. Uh, <laughs> what I'm supposed to be just saying that you could take a look at my stuff on uh, uh, green knight dot green, which is uh, green knight as in uh, the Arthurian legend, uh, Sir Gwen and the green knight. Uh, I have a podcast. It's just a series. It's like a book on tape. It's 11 episodes. And I try to explore value and solution. So there's no freedoms. There's only freedom. There's no values. There's only value. Like, so that's what I try to come at it. I'm interested in things uh, that about which there is no debate. And <laughs> I think that it's kind of a joke, right? But it's like few and far between these days. What are we sure about? What are we sure about? 
And so if we're going to come at a solution, we all got to be sure about what we're that we're on the same page. We got to be sure about it. There can be no debate. You know, we can't debate forever. And uh, so I just wanted to say that. Yeah. Green night dot green. And uh, I'll check out you guys' stuff. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm a fan of all y'all's work already. <laughs> so um, take a look and love you guys. Appreciate it. Well, uh, yeah, I'll hop in. Um, thanks again for having me. This was a great chat and um, love thinking about these ideas. Um, if I have a podcast called the Cosmic Keys Podcast where I cover um, paranormal, spiritual things, and also astrology. And I think of astrology as kind of like a study of the programming of fate in the way that this 3D matrix kind of works. So uh, you could check that out, CosmicKeysPodcast.com. Thanks again. I'll speak up. Grimerica show and our new feed is Grimerica Outlawed. And we also have, uh, we've been publishing some audiobooks. We have The Secret Doctrine on audio. And you can go to a landing page, adultbrain.ca. And The Secret Teachings of All Ages is coming out as well on a couple uh, Secret Society books. And it's been great to be involved again. Thanks, everybody. And thanks, Ricky. Mike, Leslie, Peter. Sure. Uh, um, Mike, uh, com is the website and both of my books are available there. Thanks everybody for having me. I just want to say about Leslie in case she doesn't about herself. Uh, she's profiled this week. She just published a great article in, in um, the New Yorker. Uh, and Leslie is totally changing the world right now, cracking open people's brains, uh, covering this UFO thing. And, and I think it's going to have an impact on all of this stuff, including the spiritual things because because once our perceptions widen in any way, I think all sorts of other stuff, it's possible to come in. So here, that's Leslie's book. Just to plug Leslie's book about UFOs. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you again. Uh, it's been a great time. Thanks for having me. I have to thank Mike for the plug. He's a, <laughs> Mike is one of my favorite people in the world. Um, and uh, yeah, so my website is Surviving Death. And then my last name, K-E-A-N, survivingdeathkane.com. And yeah, there is an article in The New Yorker about UFOs that just came out, which I'm part of. Um, and there's the Surviving Death series on Netflix, if people are interested in seeing that. The whole first episode is on near-death experiences, and it's really, really well done. I think it's the best of the six episodes in the series, so you might enjoy that. And yeah, I'm, just, I'm so grateful to be here because I love hearing everybody's experiences and ideas. And I just always feel so honored when I'm uh, able to hear directly from people who have had these experiences because I report on them, but I don't have a lot of, I certainly have never had a near-death experience. And it just really enriches me, my life so much to be, um, to be able to be part of a, a, you know, a group like this and just listen to people. So thank you very much for inviting me. Well, I'll jump in and say thank you for inviting me to be here tonight to meet all of you. I watched a bunch of the videos today that you've previously made and got a little understanding of who you guys are and was glad to be welcomed here tonight. I'm a, my book, um, Heaven is Beautiful, is an international Audible bestseller. And uh, I've got a series, I'm part of a series, another, another series on Netflix, um, Amazon Prime, I'm sorry, called... Uh, 
it's getting i'm tired my brain's starting to fail life uh afterlife death and back too and um, i'm in one of those episodes and i'm at peterpanagor.love and my entire life is dedicated to helping near-death experiencers speak up and mystics of other kinds because the more of us that talk the more normalized this becomes the more possible it is for us to form a global-sized collective of bringing the divine present. So that's what I'm after, peterpanagor.love. Thanks for having me very much. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you all. Awesome. And you can get the links to all this at theunionofthewanted.com. And I'll send all the participants also get links to the audio and video so you guys get to share it and post it anywhere you want. It's a, you know, it's our way of trying to get these important conversations out there as quickly and it's as many places as possible. So you guys will eventually also get that hopefully in the next couple of days. And um and thanks again guys very, very much, especially for these very, very personal oh Miriam, I'm so sorry. I, she, I'm so used to her being on the show that I'm like everybody knows who she is. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Ricky and Charlie and Sam for having me. I don't get to share my NDE very often, but it's perfect as I'm going back to my roots, which is spirituality. And um, you can find me on Telegram. My channel is called Truth Lives Here. I'm Lady B on Gab and I'm Miriam on my shadow band Twitter. And I'm currently working on a very, the most comprehensive book on George Floyd. There will be a multi-layered psyop explained. So I'll be working on that. You can find my gavel to gavel coverage on activist post if you're interested in, in uh, reading about the trial. And uh, thank you. Thank you, guys. And of course, oh. Char Char Charlie from Macroaggressions, Midnight Mike from OBDM Show. Sam Tripoli from the 800 shows he does. And then uh, Ricky Veranis from the Ripple Effect Podcast. Thanks again, guys. I truly, truly appreciate it. These are very personal stories. I, th these are the type of stories that people will keep to themselves unless they're surrounded by others that are willing to speak up. So I think you guys speaking up is, uh, is really important. So uh, thanks again, guys. I, I truly appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, thank thanks, you, everybody. Awesome. Thanks, thanks, everybody. Awesome. Good night, everybody. Night. Good night. Death is but a door. Time is but a window. I'll be back. You're dead already. We're already dead anyways. Most of us are already dead. Thanks, Mike, for staying up. Appreciate it. Hey, Mike. Good night, everyone. <laughs> I've been up since 5 a.m. Yeah, you should go to bed. <clears throat> yeah, I'm going to bed. Okay, good night. See you, everyone. Bye. Bye.